1: Let me begin with this. Uh, there's still no Speaker of the House. There's still no 118th Congress. If you want to know my thoughts and uh, my analysis of that whole situation, I want to encourage you to stop listening to the program right now and listen to yesterday's podcast for the first 20 minutes. You can go to uh, you know, the Red Apple Podcast Network com or just search the other side of midnight because nothing has changed except that one more day has passed, and uh, one more vote has gone against Kevin McCarthy. And uh, other than that, all of my thoughts from yesterday are exactly the same, and uh, the Congress is going to resume today at high noon to see if they can't elect a speaker. I would think that between the time they adjourned at around 5 p.m. yesterday and noon tomorrow, that there's got to be some progress towards some type of deal from someone. I don't know if it's going to be a situation where McCarthy is able to give these, uh, these 20 anti McCarthyites what they want. Um, I don't know if it's going to be something that comes out of the problem solvers caucus and they're able to come up with a consensus speaker. I don't know if it's going to mean more Republicans defecting to a, compromise uh, compromised candidate like Steve, Scalise. I would think that by t- this afternoon, there's going to be some serious progress made, so I'm actually going to make an effort to make sure I'm up before noon to watch some of these proceedings. But, and we'll bring we'll have more on this with uh, Brian Kilmeade in the fourth hour of our program. If you are listening in Alaska, if you are listening in Tennessee, and you're wondering why you're not hearing Brian Kilmeade, you've got to ask those stations, why are they only carrying three hours of this show? What else do they have to do? So, uh, again, we appreciate the opportunity to be on, In Tennessee and in Alaska, both great communities. But come on, got to carry all four hours of this show. This is a show that is meant to be listened to holistically, not meant to be listened to piecemeal. I know some of you tune in and tune out. You got to listen to the whole thing. It's the way the show is designed. I mean, trust me, I honestly do layer this show and structure it so that different subjects that we cover scratch your brain in different ways. And I, I have some people say, "Oh, I'm not interested in politics, I don't want to hear the politics. Okay, all right. Uh, I have some people say, oh, I'm not interested in pro wrestling, I don't want to hear the pro wrestling. Okay, deal with it. I'm not interested in aliens. Deal with it. You've got to listen to the whole thing. Whether you love every subject, we do it or not, you got to listen. Bottom line. Now, when you're 11 years old, I don't know how it is for girls, but when you're an 11 year old boy, particularly of the heterosexual variety, you will do whatever it takes to maybe 11, 12. I'll say when you're 11 and 12 years old, you will do whatever it takes to try to see any degree of nudity, right? Uh, female nudity. If you're of the heterosexual variety, I can't speak, you know. To people, that might be of a different persuasion, but I'm I'm assuming it's something similar. And that's why cable television was such a game changer. I will tell you, when I was 12 years old and you would find access to a film that had a, a naked woman in it and you'd be able to watch it, this was better than winning the lottery. And if you ever find a film where you're not expecting nudity, and some emerges. That is like, I mean, to paraphrase uh, some of the cast of Seinfeld, that's like discovering plutonium by accident. The uh, I remember, for instance, there's one Tarzan film, black and white Tarzan film with Johnny Weissmuller. I think it's Tarzan and Jane, where Jane, and this is in the 40s, maybe even the 30s, even the 30s or the 40s, Jane is swimming in the jungle naked. I mean, to see that as a 12-year-old, I mean, forget about it. It was great. So I will tell you that one of, the, one of the films that I made sure to rent out of the library for free as an 11- or 12-year-old was the 1968 Franco Zeffirelli version of Romeo and Juliet. Because you have this situation where you have these young people, teenagers in the film, And there's one scene where there's some nudity. I mean, you have other scenes that are pretty true adaptations to the Shakespearean classic. You remember the Zeffirelli version, right? This was before Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio were playing Juliet and Romeo, respectively. You had um, others playing Romeo and Juliet. It is
2: my lady.
3: Oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were. She speaks. Yet she says nothing. What of that? Her eye discourses. I will answer it. I am too bold. Tis not to me she speaks. Two of the fairest stars in all the heavens... having some business... (laughs) To entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. See how she leans her cheek upon her hand. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand that I might touch that cheek. Needless to
1: say, this is the Shakespearean play that I probably know the best. Because as a 12-year-old, I watch this over and over and over again. And uh, the two stars of that version that I just played you, the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet, are now suing Paramount Pictures for more than half a billion dollars, alleging that they were sexually exploited during a nude scene in the film when they were teenagers. Olivia Hussey, who played Juliet, was 15 years old at the time when the movie was filmed. Leonard Whiting, who played Romeo, was 16. Both of these people, both of these actors, are now in their 70s. They're now in their 70s, and they're alleging that Paramount engaged in fraud, sexual abuse, and sexual harassment. That's according to a lawsuit that was just filed in state superior court in Los Angeles County. Now, let me begin with this. One... I think it's terrible that uh, these minors were forced, if they were forced, but these minors, well, look, they can't really give consent. But I think it's terrible that these minors had to do nude scenes in this film. They should not have been doing nude scenes. And I recognize that when you have an Italian director, things are a lot more liberal back then. It's the 60s. Okay, it's still, uh, you don't recognize this when you're uh, feverishly rewinding as a 12-year-old to watch back to the nude scenes in the film. But when you have a minor, they should not be appearing nude anywhere, uh, on camera, on, in a film or in photographs. I mean, that's, that's a pretty strict and bold red line. Boom. The director of this film died three years ago, four years ago, Franco Zeffirelli, also at one point was a senator from Italy. Almost everybody involved in the production of this film is dead, except these two teenage stars who were in their 70s. Um, I feel the same way about this lawsuit, honestly, that I feel about the debate over reparations and similar issues. And that is, I'm all for holding the people that exploit children accountable, but they're all dead. There's no way to to hold them accountable. And I recognize that Paramount is still the same company that it was, you know, half a century ago, but it really is not. It's the same company in name only, and I think it's absurd to ask this company, Paramount, to pay half a billion dollars in damages for stuff that happened in the 60s. And and if you want to comment on this— I'd love to hear from you in case I'm off base on this because I'm trying to be sensitive to everybody involved. But uh, I just – I feel like it's a little late. 800-848-9222. That's 800 Additionally, the question that I asked, even when I learned more about this long before this lawsuit was filed, same thing as uh, with the people involved, the youth actors involved in Blue Lagoon, and things of that nature, is where were these actors' parents? Olivia Hussey's parents and Leonard Whiting's parents. Why did their parents permit them to film these nude scenes in a motion picture? Should not have been allowed. Do the parents bear any culpability? Now, you can't go back and ask the parents because they're dead also. There just becomes a point where, and I'm not saying these folks shouldn't get any compensation I I am saying they should not get a half a billion dollars as far as I'm concerned. There comes a point where you have to let sleeping dogs lie. If we're, you're talking about something that happened five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, okay, I could see that. If the people who made these decisions that were exploitive are still around, by all means, hold them accountable. But when you get to a point but we're talking more than half a century later and everybody involved in the situation is dead. I don't think it makes a lot of sense for today's Paramount shareholders, today's Paramount staff, to be forced to pay the price for the mistakes made, egregious as they were, from people back in 1968. Am I alone in this? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. So Zeffirelli apparently told the actors that uh, they would appear in flesh-colored clothing in a bedroom scene. But this is all according to the lawsuit. So who knows? I'm sure if Zeffirelli were alive, he might tell a different story. But on the day of the shoot, Zeffirelli told the actors they would wear body makeup with the camera positioned in a way that they wouldn't show their nude bodies. The underage actors that say they were misled – and were filmed in the nude without their knowledge in violation of state and federal laws. This is a quote from the lawsuit. Defendants were dishonest and secretly filmed the nude or partially nude minor children without their knowledge. The knowing and repeated use of sexual images of minor children is the worst of behaviors in our society and must be eradicated. So uh, the complaint says that Paramount was repackaging... What is essentially pornography? You know, this complaint would have a little bit more resonance with me if they were seeking to stop the distribution of the film or to excise uh, or censor somehow that scene in the film featuring the child nudity. But um, it looks to me like um, you have some lawyers that are potentially looking to make a lot of money here, and they may. They may. These days, you know, uh, child pornography or anything resembling child pornography is not something that anybody is really eager to defend. Uh, give me a call and tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Paramount has not responded to this uh, lawsuit in the press. The Franco Zeffirelli Foundation, which is an organization dedicated to the legacy, legacy of the director, they have not responded. The director had told these two actors the film would fail without the scene and would damage their careers. That's what's in the lawsuit. Who knows? And um, they say they had no choice but to shoot the scene nude with body makeup. And the scene, if you remember it, shows uh, Miss Hussey's bare breasts and Mr. Whiting's bare buttocks. So um, Miss Hussey said in an article in Variety four years ago, four years ago, 2018, Actually, now it's five years ago. 2018, this is what she said to Variety. She said the scene had been shot tastefully. Quote, nobody my age had done that before. It was needed for the film. So why five years ago, when people who were responsible for this scene were still alive, was she saying the scene was shot tastefully, and now in 2023 is she saying that it's child pornography and is violating federal and state laws? I think what's likely that happened here is you have these two stars that could probably use a few hundred million dollars, and you had a bunch of lawyers, or at least a couple of lawyers, reach out to them and say, you know, that was child pornography. You can sue and get a nice settlement. I think that's what this is here. I think it's as simple as that. Tell me if you disagree, and I'd love to hear if you – think there's some merit to this. And there might be, legally. Uh, I don't know uh, how strong a legal case this is, quite honestly. 800-848-9222. These two actors were previously barred from filing a lawsuit for the incident because the statute of limitations had expired. But California did the same thing that New York had done recently. California, a few years ago... See, there's a reason we have statutes of limitations. Because evidence erodes... People who are able to answer these charges die, things of that nature. But back in uh, 2019, California passed a law that lifted the statute of limitations for childhood sexual abuse for a three-year period. That three-year window expired at the end of last year. Many of those lawsuits, many lawsuits were filed there just ahead of the deadline against the Roman Catholic Church. I know some people in New York that have fallen into this uh, same category that uh, were victimized as children, and the statute of limitations expired, and uh, now they're in a new position to file suit. And I understand that. Um, This, I think, is a little bit of a different situation. Let me tell you what's coming up. We've got an action-packed show. This is one of those, those shows where whatever your particular interest is, we have something to scratch your itch. I am going to be talking in about 10 minutes with the one and only Frank Moreno. Yes, that's right. Not Frank Morano, the pizza maker. Not Frank Morano, the chairman of Community Board 3. But Frank Morano, the master cabinet maker in New Jersey, who I confess, before a month ago, I did not even know existed. Caller called me on the radio and says, hey, you got a cabinet making business in New Jersey, right? I said, absolutely. Sure enough, I don't. But... Um, I'm going to see if I can work out a deal with the other Frank Morano. We've tracked him down. I've never spoken to him before except via email. We've tracked him down. And we're going to see if uh, we can work out a deal where maybe people hire me to do their cabinets, and I'll hire him. I'll subcontract it to him. I like it. All right. All right. If you're into ancient civilizations, if you're into the possibility, the ancient astronaut theory, you are going to want to miss – you won't want to want to miss my – you won't want to miss my discussion coming up uh, next hour with Jason Martel because this man is a master of ancient civilizations, Planet X, the ancient alien theory. I'm really looking forward to him, this discussion. It's going to be the first time he's been on the show. I'm excited about that. We've got the AC report coming up in the third hour. They're still trying to get a supermarket out there. Why does it take one of the most famous cities in the world, literally, why does it take moving heaven and earth for them to get a shop right or something? We're going to explore this with a a reporter for the press of Atlantic City, Nicholas Huba. And then in our last hour, Brian Kilmeade will give us an update on the uh, speaker's race and we'll also bring you the latest on uh, the situation involving – uh, looking at tackle football anew in light of what has happened. Meantime, one, two, three, four, five, six open lines, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Loretta in New Rochelle. Hello, Loretta.
2: Hello, Frank. Hi. Um, I I have to say, uh, Romeo and Juliet, the Franco Zeffirelli version, is probably it's on my top ten favorite movies of all time. I remember seeing it for the first time in 1968. I was very young and impressionable, and I just loved it, and I probably watch it again maybe every couple of years or so but I, when i first heard about this lawsuit at first i honestly i honestly thought it was a joke i couldn't believe what i was hearing i thought i thought it was a joke i mean all these years later come on that's ridiculous and um also if i remember correctly i mean see as a as a, a woman you know maybe notice these things as as much as you said, you you know you watched it over and over again because you wanted to see the scene, but is it just like a flash? Yes, it's a, quick. a quick it's, flash? It, it, exactly
1: that's why I had to use the VCR to do the freeze frame it's not <laughs> it's not it's not pornography i mean it, it's
2: right. not it, it, it's, it's art right see I think the director it's a lot of it it's as art, not as like a sexual thing
1: I do too uh, that being said, you know you can't use you know minors for nudity. But right. um, you know, again, it's fifty-four years later. I, I think to I file for a half a billion dollars now, I don't know. It looks to it's me, crazy. it looks to me like opportunism.
2: Yes, and, and I have to also add that I had a crush on uh, Leonard Whiting for probably like ah. Ten years at least. You know, oh, he's a handsome a young guy. Young adolescent girl. Oh my God, was he hot?
1: <laughs> he, he's still a handsome, older guy now. I don't know yes. what he's up to now, but uh, we'll we'll see if we can get him on the show. We'll put you in touch. Uh, but I agree with you, Loretta. <laughs> it's a it's a phenomenal film. Uh, the controversy, and that's one of the other shames about this lawsuit is, is it is really well done. It's a masterfully done movie, and it's it's such yes. a shame that there's going to be this stigma attached to it now going forward.
2: Yes, and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a film that um, I have a lot of nieces, and when they, you know, got to be like young teenagers, I would say, okay, you have to come over, and we're going to watch this movie, and they loved it as much as I did when I was like an adolescent, they were like, oh my gosh, and you know, so I mean, it's a shame that now there's like a cloud over this movie, exactly. that's, that's absolutely wonderful.
1: I'm with you, Loretta. Thank you. 800-848-9222. If you agree, if you disagree, if you have additional thoughts, additional insights, or especially if you're a lawyer and you want to give your two cents about how strong a case you think this is, you know, unfortunately, I think this actually might be a pretty strong case because California did undo temporarily the statute of limitations for this sort of thing, and they were minors right? But I just think it's unfair to make people today pay for the mistakes of folks that are no longer alive. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We can always count on a little wisdom from Tom from the Bronx. Hello, Tom.
4: Yeah, hi, yes, hi
1: Tom.
5: I like to say
4: that yes. I think it's ridiculous. Uh, this lawsuit's ridiculous. Uh, of course... They had the nude scenes at that time, but I'm sure it should have been covered in the uh, contract that these people couldn't sue at that particular time. In other words, they couldn't sue after the, the the motion picture went out.
1: Well, I I don't know what kind of contract they saw they they signed. Honestly, Tom, my question again is: Where were their parents? Right? If their their parents their parents should have been on set and monitoring this kind of thing, and not letting the children be uh, explo- Exploited if they were exploited. Tom, thank you for the call. It always worries me whenever I'm in that much agreement with you, Tom. Thank you. All right, we're going to talk with the one and only Frank Moreno in just a bit. This is very exciting. It's an interview we've been preparing for for a long time, looking forward to for a long time. If anything ever happens to me, I am told they are already trying to get a hold of this Frank Morano because they don't want to have to change the stationery or any of the signage around here. It's going to be a very exciting a very exciting Frank Morano on Frank Morano interview. Unprecedented in the world of radio, I believe. Uh, but, you know, If there is precedent for it, I'm not aware. You know what? I I do have another friend named Frank Morano, no relation, who called me when I was filling in for John Gambling one time. And we had a a Frank on Frank conversation on the radio. So there is some precedent for it. But I didn't get to prepare adequately for this. I have spent a great deal of time preparing for my exclusive interview in mere moments with Frank Morano. Listen straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Frank Morano.
1: songs there by two different artists. What do they have in common? The same name. There's Jump by Van Halen and Jump by the Pointer Sisters. Very apropos of the discussion we are about to have. Let me take you back in time to about a month ago when I received a call from a gentleman named uh, Roy from New Jersey. No, it's not unusual for me to get a call from the state of New Jersey. The Garden State, I spent a lot of time in the Garden State. I have friends in the Garden State, relatives, associates. been to the Garden State many times. But I had never been asked what Roy asked me on December 12th of last year. Roy is in New Jersey. Hello, Roy.
5: Hi. Uh, how you doing, uh, Frank?
6: I'm doing okay. I uh,
5: online a couple of weeks ago that you got a kitchen cabinet resurfacing business.
6: First
1: of all, Roy, do me a favor because this is uh-huh. I, I don't want to miss a word. Turn your radio off, please. Okay. Okay. Did Kenneth tell you to turn your radio off? No. Interesting. Interesting. Boy, you can tell Kenneth's back, ladies and gentlemen. Second Hold caller on, of the night, you can tell Kenneth is back. Um So uh, yes, it's true, Roy. I uh, I do moonlight as uh, someone that uh, resurfaces uh, kitchens and cabinets, and I can uh, I can essentially do I can do anything that needs doing in your home (laughs) for the right price. uh,
5: Do it in Warren, New Jersey?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I absolutely can do it in Warren, New Jersey.
5: All right. Because when I saw it, I said, "Oh." This yeah, it's good.
1: Yeah, no. If
5: uh, I can always go on the radio, complain. Like you get a contract you don't like, them, how do you complain about them? The, no. Like uh, something that, in a paper. That, no, uh, I could drive you crazy on the radio. <laughs> get out to all your listeners. He he screwed me on those
1: cabinets. Little does Roy know, I can't even <laughs> operate a, a a hammer effectively. Yeah, Roy. Right. Well, that's great. I hope you. Uh, I hope you do use my services in the uh, kitchen cabinet business. I think you're going to be very satisfied.
5: All right. I'm glad to know that you do it so I know where I I need the service. I can go there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You need me, I'm your man. Let me bring you back to the near present. So, we have tracked down the other Frank Moreno. Needless to say, I do not resurface cabinets. But somebody who does is the owner of Modern Cabinet Finishes LLC, who happens to be named, great name as it is, Frank Moreno and I am very, very pleased to welcome to the other side of midnight the other Frank Moreno. Frank, it is great to meet you. Thanks for coming on the radio.
7: Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for calling.
1: So, Frank, let's get the uh, most important stuff out of the way. Are, are we are we related at all? Do you think?
7: Well, I don't know, maybe. But uh, so your, your family went to Brooklyn, and I think mine went to the Bronx. I see.
1: When they okay. Came over. Uh now uh, as best you understand um you I obviously you're of Italian derivation as well, right? Yeah. yeah so uh, as best you understand in your lineage, who was the first Morano in your line to be born in the United States?
7: That was probably my grandmother who was born around 1903 in Philadelphia.
1: Well, she but she wouldn't have had the name Morano though, right?
7: Um no, actually, you're right. She was a Martino, and uh, she married as a teenager to my grandfather, Morano. I guess the first
1: Morano to be born here from my small end of the family was my father. Oh, okay. And so it what was... was also what... Frank Morano. <laughs> okay, so Frank Morano was the first in your line to be born here. And around what year was he born? Ballpark. Uh, 1927. And, and so your, his father was from Italy. Yes, and uh, and what was your, what was your grandfather's name by any by chance? It was uh, John. John. Okay, and uh, uh, what part of Italy?
7: Um, Cosenza uh, in uh, Calabria, a okay. little town called uh, uh, San Donato di Nunea. Okay, like one of those hilltop feudal towns so, that are all over. Uh,
1: so, uh, do you have any idea what year your grandfather came to the United States? Mm,
7: I want to say it was around. I think it was right after World War One.
8: All
1: right. Well, so I, I am thinking we're probably not related because the, fir- the first Morano in my lineage that was born here was uh, my great grandfather. Uh, uh, Car- his name was Carmine, but they called him. You know, they called him Charlie, and he was born, I think, in um, the late 1800s. So uh, I'm assuming uh, we're probably. At least, at least, although you go far enough back, and I guess everybody's related, especially especially in Italy, but that's okay. All right, uh, so tell us about your business. What do you what do you do over at uh, Modern Cabinet Finishes? If the name wasn't a dead giveaway. <laughs> yeah.
7: Well, I I uh, I've been in the paint and design business for decades, and um, I sold Benjamin more products for like eight nine years. And every once in a while, somebody would have a question, like, I really want to get a really nice finish. You know, like if you buy a brand-new kitchen cabinet, it looks so nice. How do I get that finish? So I started trying all different types of finishes, and everything was either too soft or it didn't dry smooth enough or it didn't have any durability or it yellowed over time. And it's been years. I keep going back to the well. I've tried different uh, chemical coatings from all over the country, uh, Sherwin's sure, products, a lot of the over-the-counter stuff. And then I started getting into about, I uh, guess about 2014, 15, they started coming out with these waterborne products that are every bit as hard as the old solvent products, but they could be used inside people's homes because they don't have mm-hmm. the fumes and the long dry times. So I started experimenting with those. I use a lot actually come from Italy. Um, There's a company called Renner, another company called Nolesi, excellent products, and uh, we use those. And it's very similar to, like, if you had a classic car and you wanted to have it repainted, you're basically replacing the finish on the car. So what we do is if you have a pretty nice kitchen and you want to make some changes but nothing drastic, you know, up until now, your choice was rip it all out, send it to a landfill, (laughs) buy a whole new one, have somebody installed it for you, and you know you could spend you know unlimited amounts of money we've had uh, we've had clients that were quoted a hundred thousand plus dollars to replace their cabinets, Well we can go in for a fraction of that cost oh. sometimes three percent five percent max ten percent depending on what we're doing. And
1: basically restore your cabinets back to showroom condition. So it's, and, it's a very innovative method of uh, cabinet resurfacing you do.
8: Yeah, I it, like it.
7: Basically, when I worked for Benjamin Moore, I had a uh, opportunity to do some consulting work for uh, a pharmaceutical company, and I just hit it off with the CEO. He's a nice guy, and then one day he said, "I want you know, to come and work for us full time." So I left uh, where I was working with the Benjamin Moore products, and I. Uh, I started working for a pharmaceutical company, and I started to notice how big business made decisions. They had a lot of money, and they just did a lot of stupid things and I remember laughing i said if if we ran small businesses, the way you ran big businesses, mm. we'd all be out of business <laughs> so, the uh, We used to get inspected quite often by the fDA as everybody who's in pharmaceutical uh, manufacturing. Um, And one of the things they had a problem with, they had changed the laws to uh, the metal laboratory cabinetry. Everything we had was like a light gray color, and they wanted a lot of them color-coded, like if different chemicals needed to be like in a white cabinet with a green stripe or a blue cabinet with a yellow stripe or a yellow cabinet with a red stripe if it was flammable. And it was going to be like $1.6 million to replace all this cabinetry. But I said, what if we just spray them? And they were like, what? Well, you end up doing that, and the FDA loved it. I mean, we had to set up a whole mock-up in the warehouse of how we were going to do it because they're very concerned about odor, very concerned about dust. So we basically – went along with this thing we use extraction fans and filtration systems all right.
1: well i mean it's uh it sounds like uh certainly sounds like you know what you're doing now let me uh get to um the question that uh that the caller roy there had do you service warren new jersey uh, uh, yeah actually uh, i'm from martinsville which is the next town over perfect so. great all right so that's uh that's certainly good um so do you have a middle name lewis Lewis, so you're Frank Lewis Morano. I did have an uncle, yeah. uh, Louis for a time. L O U I S or yes. Okay, well, who knows? Maybe we are. Maybe we are related. All right. Did um in your now that I've had somebody ask me if I was you, essentially on the radio, in your travels uh, up and down the, uh, the the Garden State in the uh, cabinet business, has anybody ever asked you if you're me or if we're related or anything like that?
7: Actually. This has been going on my whole life because, as I said, I grew up in Martinsville, and, which is part of Bridgewater, and uh, they had a radio station there with Tony Moreno oh. on it. So everybody,
1: and I wanted to ask you, are you related to Tony? Because you're both in broadcast. You know, I don't think I'm up on Tony Moreno. What, rela- what radio station was he on? Uh, WBRW. No, I'm going to have to research that one. So I uh, yeah. I know and I see I'm, I'm, this is quite an educational uh, phone call for, uh, for me. How about how about more re- recently, like in the last 10 years, any any discussion of you being either Frank Morano or related to Frank Morano? Uh,
7: we get it quite a bit, actually. Oh, good. Um, where it seems to be for some reason is. Or the guys who work in paint stores, because we still go to paint stores to get a lot of materials like sanding blocks and vacuum bags and, you know, dust cloths and things like that.
1: And they all go, oh, Frank Marano, you on the radio? All the time. Wonderful. All the time. Great. I love hearing that. (laughs) I love love hearing that. Now, uh, have you ever listened to this show? I have, actually. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Well, that's good. You don't sound that enthused about it. But, okay, I hope I'm not not letting down the name. Uh, I hope I'm not letting down the name. but, um, But that's good. I'm wondering if we can, you know, work out some sort of a deal, Frank, since, you know, a lot of people think I'm, well, at least one person, Roy, thinks I'm you as it is. People can hire me, who knows nothing about cabinet finishing, to do their cabinet, and then I will outsource the job to you who actually knows what he's doing and we can, you know, we can work something out where they're still getting serviced by a Frank Morano and, you know, I'm kind of the face of the Frank Morano radio end of the business, and then you and people that know what they're doing can do the actual work.
7: I like where your head's at.
1: <laughs> okay. okay. That sounds like a good plan. <laughs> um hey, uh if they ever need you to fill in on the radio, Frank, are you up for that? Yeah. Actually um
7: Years ago, 30 years ago, I owned a recording studio, oh. and uh, one of the interns that worked for me also worked for another radio station in New Jersey that's kind of New Jersey-centric, and it's an FM station. Sure, sure. I'm familiar with it. So he was a call screener for a couple of fellas who talk a lot about nothing in the afternoon. <laughs> so he wanted to do a, a buddy show because he thought that was the future.
1: All right. So you have he some broadcasting say. experience. Yeah, yeah, we right. actually
7: had a uh, we had one of the first podcast type of shows on the Piscataway um uh from the their municipal building that went through all of cable vision all through the state. And um it was actually nice and it it was uh fun and it just got a little weird and walking through Bridgewater
1: Mall and people going, hey, that's that guy, because <laughs> they t- actually tell about it. All right, I love it. So, I, so this is, uh, I think this is the genesis of a plan here. Now, have you ever, have you encountered in the, in the, wherever, any, anywhere, other Frank Moranos?
7: Well, I have a cousin named Frank Morano, um, and he, and of course my father was Frank Morano, and um, yeah, but
4: other
7: than that, the only ones that I know of are still over in Calabria. Uh, my father used to, when he, after he retired, we'd go back and forth to visit you know, aunts, uh, uncles, cousins. And he said, you know, they had a picture one time with like three or four different guys. And they said they're all Frank Morano.
1: Well, but even now, though they were in Italy and there's no K in the Italian al- alphabet, what were they, Francis or something else? Franco? You know, they're, all,
7: they're all like my father was uh, Francesco Luigi Morano. I so see. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm an Americanized version. Sure, of it.
8: sure.
7: But okay. uh, and I thank him for that because it's uh, it's in the neck enough signing your name on things. <laughs> yeah, that, that's for yeah, sure. Well. All right. Well, so, so apparently we're, there's a town called Morano that's above uh, San Donato where we're from.
1: You know, another like, another fellow named Frank Morano. He actually visited Italy and took a photo of that town, uh, the sign for that town, and sent it to me. So, yeah, no, there is a town, which I did not know. In fact, maybe what we can do one day is there's a Frank Morano that's a pizza maker, and there's a Frank Morano that's the chairman of Community Board 3. Maybe we could do a Frank Morano panel. We'll have you in with all the Frank Moranos, and we'll just tackle all the issues that all of us that are Frank Moranos have to deal with on a regular basis.
7: Well, there are a lot of issues that come up specifically just to us.
1: That's right. I'd be more than happy to be on a panel like that. That's right. Hey, so if people want to, in all seriousness, if people want to get a hold of you to have their uh, their cabinet done, uh, what's the best way for them to do that?
7: Well, um, email uh, moderncabinetfinishes at gmail dot com, or if they want, they can um, they could text me right to my cell phone. Um, it's not a problem. Most people want to talk directly to somebody and they usually have a lot of questions and every kitchen's different. So it's better for me to start a direct dialogue. And we used to use a, a middleman service through a, a website and it was just, you know, people would right. say, Oh, I sent you a message and I didn't get anything back. But if you call me directly, my phone's with me 24 hours a day. And, uh, or text me. You know, takes right. so a picture of a kitchen and say what's this gonna cost? Because that's what everybody wants to know. Right. How much is it gonna cost? How long is it gonna take?
1: <laughs> modern Cabinet Finishes at gmail dot com. Now, because you're you're running around with my name there, uh Frank, if if anybody does have a complaint or anything, we do have to have a complaint line open for them to raise this complaint on the air publicly.
7: Okay. That sounds good to me. <laughs> We've done over three hundred kitchens. And we don't advertise, so every time we do a kitchen, we generally get recommended to at least one, sometimes up to three more kitchens. So we are not the type of contractors who are just running around. It's a family business, my wife, my son, and myself.
1: All right, well, when you do start advertising, you got to start on this show for obvious reasons.
7: I could be co- coerced into this. Okay.
1: okay. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, so this is an interesting call. We actually have Roy, the fir- person that uh, first asked about the cabinet business, uh, calling in. Roy, did you end up using uh, the other Mr. Morano's services?
5: No. I told him. I'm looking for a house out in Warren. And if I find any cabinet work, then I would call Morano. So now I found out tonight there's is. There's
1: two. We're going to come there together. So, we're going to right, work now, on now, this together. Now that
5: I brought this out, do I get a part of the action here? You just hook up? <laughs> uh, I'll well, let Frank work, work that out. Out. We'll bring Now people. let me ask you this other question. A specific color I would like. I was just thinking about it. Excellent question. The same color that Curtis Lewa and Avery were looking, I would like my kitchen cabinets. You know what color that is?
1: Red. Black and blue. Black and blue. All right. Well, so there you go. I'll uh, leave. I'll leave the, the negotiations of to that too, to to Frank. All right. Um, you know, th- there you go, Frank. If you're getting getting uh, cabinet uh, leads from this show. They're going to be a little bit uh, a little bit like Roy, I think. Hey, uh, Frank. It's been uh, great meeting you. Great talking with you. Uh, let's stay in touch in case we are related and one of us needs an organ or something. That sounds good to me.
7: All right, Frank. Thank I'm older you. than you, so I'm probably first in line. There, there you <laughs> go.
1: Hey, I would do anything for a Frank Morano. Uh, thank you, Frank. Appreciate it. Happy New Year.
7: Thank you. You also. All
1: right, uh, Frank Morano. Modern cabinet finishes. You can email him at uh, moderncabinetfinishes at gmail dot com. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to give his phone number out, you know, because who knows? If you're getting calls from Roy at 4 o'clock in the morning. It's the last thing he needs. Hey, we were talking about this uh, Romeo and Juliet lawsuit. And I want to give people an opportunity to comment on that in case they'd like to. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Karen is in New Jersey. Hello there, Karen. Hello, how are you? And thank you for taking my call. Sure.
9: I just, I, when I heard you talking about Romeo and Juliet, I had to call in because um, when, I was in high, when I was in high school, it was in ninth grade, we read Romeo and Juliet. Our teachers heard about the movie, so they arranged for us to have a class trip to go see the movie. But some of the mothers were very – they had heard about – there was a nude scene in the movie – so they were very concerned. So they went on the trip with us because they were worried about what our reaction would have been to the movie.
1: Uh, well, when I, I th- saw the movie – go ahead. No, 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 I was just going to say, I mean, it, the, the scene is so brief. You almost – you turn your head and you blink and you, you miss it. I mean, it's not – It's 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 a moment of nudity. It's not really – I wouldn't characterize it as a nude scene. Well, the, the mothers, were.
9: they heard about the new sure. scene in the movie, and they were very concerned about it, so they went on the trip with us. What you were saying is exactly right. It was a brief scene. It was a kind of a dark scene, but I do remember the breasts. Um, I do remember seeing her breasts, and I didn't think much of it. But the mothers were more
1: concerned than we were. How did the mothers react once they saw the scene in the theaters?
9: Well... I think it was more of a reaction to it. They they took it like we did. They didn't think much of it. They thought uh, uh, one of the mothers was kind of concerned about the scene, but the other mothers took it the way we did. We It was a very brief scene, and they were fine with it in the end. Well, okay,
1: yeah. Really, I mean, so what's your take on this lawsuit, Karen?
9: I just think it's a, a little bit over the top because— there wasn't much nudity in the scene. I think um, they're reaching, they're overstretching it. I don't think, I don't think this lawsuit shoot this lawsuit should have been brought because there, it was a very, like you were saying, it was a very brief scene and there wasn't much nudity. Is it, it was a love story. And, and uh, they were, it was about two young people who well um, Romeo, Juliet, Capulet, and Romeo Montague. Those were their real names. Yeah. Um, The the mothers took it very well. By the time they saw the scene, they were really comfortable with it. And they didn't think there was much to it. They were more concerned about how the students were going to take it. And we took it fine, and so did the mothers. I think there was one mother who had quite a different reaction to it. She was... She wasn't happy with the
1: nude scene at all. You know, uh, thank you, Karen. I, I appreciate the uh, the call and the uh, reminiscing. I I think once people see the scene, you know, th- there's always so much hype about something, and a lot of times when there's hype, it's easy to get worked up over something, and then you see it. You see, there's not much there. The bottom line is, they're minors. They they should not have been nude in a film. Period. But it was 1968. It's now the year 2023. Forgetting about the legal justification for this lawsuit. Morally, ethically, I don't think it's right to make the people who own Paramount today, the shareholders of Paramount, pay a half a billion dollars for a decision that was made by a director that's not even alive today. I just, in, I realize it's a different game, a ball game, but To me, it's the Columbus situation all over again. It's the government of Australia apologizing to uh, the aborigines for treatment from hundreds of years ago. It's uh, the mayor of New Orleans today apologizing to what happened to Italians in 1892. This is so much worse because there's a half billion dollars involved. I just – this lawsuit, I don't know the legality of it. I don't know if they have a strong case or not. I think they might actually, but I just think, come on, come on. It's just too much. It's just too much. At some point, you got to let sleeping dogs lie. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to disagree. If you disagree, we we'll put you to the front of the line. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Murano
1: Criss Cross, yet another song titled Jump. This song not as good as the other two, but it certainly was popular. You know, that's what you got to say about Criss Cross. You can't really listen to their music and say, oh, boy, this is great. It's not great, but it was popular. It certainly was. I mean, the early part of the 90s, this this was everywhere. You remember? You even had people dressing backwards as part of the Criss Cross trend. All right. Um. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. So this So after, yesterday afternoon when I woke up, which one of the first things you do, and, uh, Carmen's babysitter was still over, so I, I started working on the show. I l- log on to my email, or at least I tried to log on to my email and tried to start working on the show, see who's gotten back to me, about guests that I'm pursuing, different things that I'm working on. And the first thing I do, I log on to the email. Can't log on can't log on now it's not just that I couldn't log on to my work email because my personal email was was fine but it says it had a very ominous message it says it, as I, I'm looking through my phone now because I took a I took a, a photograph of it but it's difficult for me to work my way through all these carmine photographs that end up populating most of my uh, most of my phone But the message says, your email access, I'm paraphrasing slightly here, has been disabled. Please contact your administrator. I said, "Uh uh-oh. And I said, uh, okay, yeah, it said, your account has been disabled. And it has my email. It says, your Google account was disabled by your Google Workspace administrator. Contact your administrator for help. I got to tell you. I was petrified. Petrified. Why are they disabling my email? So I text um, a couple of the bigwigs here. I didn't bother John or Chad with this. But I texted a couple of people. I said, you know, guys, my email account has been disabled. I'm hoping I haven't been fired. If I'm still employed, any idea of how I can get it back? If I have been fired, let me know, and I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> and... um one of them, uh, Doug, who's a, a great guy, and he's our chief of operations, I think, uh, or I, he's got some title. I don't know. I've lost track of what people's titles are, but he, he's he's high up there on the total book. He says, um, I, I don't think you're fired. I'll speak with Nabib, He's the HR guy. Stand by. Coming back. And they restored it. So now that I have email, if you want to send me some, I will be able to read it. You can do so at frank.morano at WABC.com. Radio.com, uh, it's dot m o r a n o at w-a-b-c-radio.com. Heather in British Columbia, we have about 40 seconds, Heather, but you've been holding. Hello.
10: Hello. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. I think there's several parts to this Romeo and Juliet issue, and they all could be true at the same time. Um, there's the exploitation factor. There's the, it's a classic, well-done Um but there's the potential harm to young people that they may or may not carry uh, trauma through their life.
1: Heather, I'm going to have to and end then, it there. It's a fine point. Okay. Uh, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you for the call. Jason Martel is here. We're going to talk aliens and ancient civilizations. Very exciting. Keep asking questions. One of the things that I enjoy enjoy doing on this program is exploring the unexplained. Sometimes that leads us to look up and explore what's in the sky and the very credible reports of different sightings that can't be explained as uh, weather balloons or something that has an easy to understand explanation. And sometimes that means looking backwards, looking backwards in the Earth's history. How did ancient civilizations do that? How did artifacts get here? Why, do, uh, why have certain mythologies developed along similar patterns in different places? Well, I am so excited to talk with uh, our guest for the next hour because he's been somebody that has spent literally years – Researching, lecturing, writing on both of those issues and where they intersect with one another. He's one of the leading researchers and lecturers who has specialized in ancient civilization technologies. He's been featured on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, Sci-Fi Channel, BBC been featured on the show, Ancient Aliens, many times. An acclaimed researcher, lecturer, co-founder of many companies, an incredibly successful entrepreneur. It is a real pleasure to welcome to the program for the first time, Jason Martell. Jason, it's great to have you on. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Frank. It's a pleasure to be on your show. The pleasure is all mine. Tell folks how you got started with, uh, with your work and your research in this, in this realm.
11: Yeah, I'd be happy to. And we'll be touching on some of the latest developments tonight. Uh, When I was in college, I was told that there's some artificial structures on Mars, possibly a face and pyramids. And this was in the 1990s. So back then, the climate for that type of information was very skeptical. Even myself, I was like, what? Why wouldn't NASA tell us about these things? So I started to research that uh, heavily. It turned out that the principal photographer the company arming the orbiters and landers with cameras was called Malin Space Science Systems. And it was also located in San Diego, where I was attending college. And I called Dr. Mike Malin, just as a layman, college student, and said, hey, is there any possibility that these structures on Mars are artificial? And he said, no, they're all natural, weather-eroded processes not created by aliens or us. And that just really piqued my attention. And we'll discuss that tonight. But I started to realize that while well, I'm looking at stuff on Mars and thinking that these are artificial, There's there's structures all over our own planet that we still don't understand our true human origins. So, Frank, that's what led me on this journey of trying to understand that there is a lost connection to some type of a, an advanced race that existed pre-ice age. And it's been influencing or did influence all the great ancients that we know of today. But we're now starting to unlock a new version of our history, a prehistory, uh, off the recorded books. Um, and unlocking that is opening up a lot of new doorways into understanding our human origins.
1: The uh, so the I think a lot of people that have gone to college have seen on various door room, uh, dorm room posters an image of somebody that kind of looks like uh, like Elvis uh, on Mars. Was that the image that sparked your your initial desire to research this further?
11: Uh, <clears throat> if you're speaking of the face on Mars. Right there, right there is there is a, a very large object on the face of Mars that I've been also studying uh, for a couple of decades. And yes, that's initially NASA basically called it the head as it was imaged live in the seventies with the Viking camera, and they dismissed it as a trick of light and shadow. And further evidence over the last two decades has shown that that structure is an actual artificial structure but we need feet on the ground, you know, people on Mars to actually confirm this type of a discovery of, you know, archaeo astro discoveries on another planet. So, um we'll get there. We're going to be going to Mars in the next couple of years via SpaceX, uh, currently scheduled for 2026-2027. So, game changer time to uh, find out some of these answers.
1: That that's for sure. Yeah, you alluded to the, uh, the the lost race that may have been on, on this planet. Yes. How similar do, do you believe that that race is to the current human race? And what is or what was the timeline for that race's existence on this planet?
11: Yes. Well, those are the key questions, Frank. So that's I think that's what we're chasing down is what we see now is that there's, you know, Across the globe, there's evidence of ancient technology left at all these megalithic sites. And if you go to any of these locations and speak to the local cultures, you know, you hear about these tales of these teachers that appeared uh, way in the past. And and we can equate this to basically uh, the, the, the last great flood that we had, the last great cataclysm. cataclysm, you know, 10,000 BC plus. What we're seeing is that all these ancient cultures reference these teachers that appear right after the flood and bring knowledge of agriculture and architecture and astronomy. And so what we've been trying to do is push back the clock in understanding that a lot of these ancient sites are showing us evidence that they existed much earlier than, than we prev- previously thought. And so it starts to align up with, again, this this culture that probably existed, uh, you know, again, pre-Ice Age, and their their remnants and their pieces of knowledge were passed to all the great Sumerian, Mesopotamian, Aztec. Uh, you go around the globe and you see the same evidence of this type of knowledge and architecture and knowledge of astronomy uh, being passed uh, around. And so uh, what we've done over the last couple of decades is really analyzed the physical evidence in that if you go to a lot of these ancient sites, you know, we've got a lot of these in, um, you know, in Peru and South America, sites like Tiwanaku and Pumapunku, Teotihuacan, Sacsayhuaman, all of these sites <clears throat> with very intriguing names, they all have uh, site uh, monuments that are built, uh, megalithic monuments out of stone where the builders were able to articulate stone, some of the hardest stones on earth, granite, diorite, and make most unbelievable cuts of precision blocks fit together without any mortar. And so we look at this evidence and say, wow, okay, so those people at the time of when these cultures existed did not have the technology that we're aware of to heat stone to this type of temperature Uh, make these types of uh, mathematical alignments so precision uh, in in their nature. And so it raises a lot of questions as to how they were able to do this and who could have possibly have taught them. And so that's what we've been tracking down. And there's other pieces, too, that we'll discuss, Frank, that deal with star alignments and, and geological data. But a lot of things are starting to point to, well, who are these people? Where did they go? And we're we're basically being forced to roll back the clock of time uh, much further than what these sites were attributed to at their current dates of creation.
1: So um, based on what you just said, obviously one of the questions that I think – Always gets talked about in bars and on radio shows and maybe even in the halls of academia is the uh, the ancient pyramids of Egypt. There's always a lot of wonderment about how an ancient civilization could have had the technology to build those pyramids. Do those pyramids fit the example of the kind of the kind of uh, formations, the kinds of technology that you're talking about?
11: They do, and that's a perfect segue. Excuse me, into giving some you know examples of evidence. So, the Giza pyramids are you know a, a work of art that we attribute to the Egyptian culture, having created those at roughly around 2500 BC. There are um, hieroglyphics and inscriptions. Uh, Dr. Zahi Hawass and others have found what they consider to be the site of the burial of the actual pyramid builders and. Texts that explain them building the pyramids, I could interpret those as saying they were also perhaps just doing a makeover of the pyramids. Just because I live in a current house and I pay rent doesn't mean that I necessarily built the house as well. So there's controversial stories around, um, you know, the date of the pyramids. Simply because when we look at just the Egyptian evidence of the date to say that you know this culture at this time was doing this for Khufu and and, and what have you. There's another way to look at this, which is astronomical and geological data, which is starting to point to much older dates. So what we can do is with the Giza pyramids, there's enough evidence to show that it's basically a terrestrial map on the ground mirroring the Orion constellation. Now, the Orion constellation is three stars perfectly aligned with the top one slightly offset. If you look at the pyramids from a satellite image, you'll see that they're exactly that, three pyramids in a row with the top small ones slightly offset. And it turns out that if you use advanced software to map the sky, redshift, others, you can know exactly when the stars will be and in what position. You can also roll back the time and see where the stars were and in what position. And it turns out that in 10,500 B.C., not 2500 B.C., 10,500 B.C., Orion is directly above the three pyramids of Giza, Mm. literally mirroring it in the sky. And at that same time, uh, the Sphinx is gazing directly east into the constellation of Leo, which is a lion. So that's one example where whoever built the pyramids built them as a terrestrial alignment to map to the date at 10,500 B.C. using star markers. So that would be one suggestion. And then quickly, another one is geological evidence. If you look at the inner walls of the Sphinx, the enclosure of it, remember when they first found the Sphinx, it was covered in sand. You know, It had been covered by time and they had to uncover it. And even uncovering it, removing all of the sand, the inner walls of the structure showed massive weather erosion. Um, there's been m- many geologists who have looked at this and said, well, there's, there's really no way that this type of water exposure could have happened unless it was massive amounts of water running over the surface. And the last time massive amounts of water were running over the sur- surface of Giza, 10,000 B.C. plus. So that's one example of where, you know, Giza says, yeah, it was built by Egyptians, 2,500 B.C., but the geological evidence, the astronomical star alignments tell us a different date.
1: Uh, that's fascinating, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Jason Martell, author, lecturer, entrepreneur. You can check out his website, Jason Martell, M A R T E L L dot com. And if anyone's tempted to uh, dismiss Jason as uh, some sort of a, a, a crackpot or a crank, uh, the work that you do, Jason, both as a researcher and in the business community, in, in addition to researching ancient civilizations, you are uh, oftentimes firmly in within the bounds of what they consider mainstream science, right? As a senior interactive programmer, as an Internet designer, you've worked with some of the leading technology companies all over the world. Old, right,
11: I have. I've kind of worn two hats in my career. Uh, my my professional skill set has allowed me to work on modern technology, and uh, then obviously my fascination is with ancient technology. And so, over the years, I've been thankfully in a position to you know fund some of my research and projects where uh, looking at ancient cultures or ancient languages, let's say like Sumerian cuneiform script. I can't read Sumerian cuneiform script, but I can definitely hire linguists to give me feedback and understanding. And so that's kind of what I've been, you know, thankfully in the position to do over the years is just, you know, uh, uh, fund some of the research as well as be involved. So it's a very exciting time to be following along in, 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 you know, the lines of research. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Uh, There has been an explosion of interest in recent years namely pr- probably because of the uh, History Channel show that you've been featured on many times in what they call the Ancient Alien or Ancient Astronaut Hypothesis. And a lot of people probably know about it from the show on the History Channel, but in case they don't, another fellow that's been featured on that show, uh, Giorgio Sakoulis publisher of Legendary Times, he kind of broke down the basics of the ancient astronaut theory on National Geographic...
3: The ancient astronaut theory tries to establish whether or not extraterrestrials visited Earth in the remote past. The Mahabharata, an ancient Indian epic, which is their equivalent of the Bible, is packed with stories of gods, which a long, long time ago flew around in marvelous golden sky ships referred to as Vimanas. They were also very specific in mentioning that they are machines made out of metal. It describes their weaponry, that some Vimanas had the capability of cloaking themselves to become invisible. All crazy science fiction type stuff, but was it really science fiction? That's the big question. These cosmic eggs appear in virtually every single creation story of each culture all around the world. They all begin the same way that one day the heavens opened and this silver cosmic egg descended from the sky and... These gods came out of these eggs and taught mankind in various disciplines. Uh,
1: Jason, does Giorgio have the basics of the ancient astronaut theory correct? And uh, is there anything that you'd add into giving our listeners sort of a a primer into understanding the basics of the ancient astronaut
3: theory?
11: I would, but I'm going to throw a twist in there. I'm obviously a large proponent of the ancient astronaut theory, and Giorgio is a good friend and colleague. Where I start to differ from the traditional line of research around ancient aliens is yes, we've been looking into many sites around the world and they do uh, show evidence of um, the power of flight being shown uh, and understood and listed, various other technologies. And where I am starting to draw a line in difference is to say that I don't think necessarily everything is, is influenced by extraterrestrials. There's a strong amount of evidence to suggest that what we're seeing is evidence for a lost race that was highly advanced. Now, were they completely human, this pre-Ice Age civilization? Not sure. Their physical characteristics are much uh, taller than us. Um, That's one of the key things of this uh, line of research is investigating these, these heroes, these gods that show up after the flood. Uh, There's also strong reports that they were much taller in nature, a physical, larger being. Um, And so what we have are burial sites, for instance, all over North America, Native American sites, uh, archaeological digs with citations of actual bones and people found that are between 6.7 and 7 feet tall minimum. And these are females as well. Um, There is physical evidence of a taller people again, that we're here as teachers, and I think what I'm starting to lean towards is not so much addressing everything to say that, you know, ancient astronaut theory explained that directly. There is a lot of intervention and stories uh, from other places that appear to be in the solar system or, you know, in our our galaxy, other star systems, Sirius, Pleiades, but the overwhelming amount of evidence, excuse me, is suggesting to me that there is a lost race just pre-Ice Age that we're, we're still trying to unlock who they were and where they came from, but not necessarily directly extraterrestrial.
1: Uh, we're going to take a, a quick break, and we're going to continue with Jason Martell. If you have questions, we're going to try and get to as many of them as we can. I have a lot, so uh, we'll, we'll get to some of you for sure, but we'll give my questions precedent. You can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Jason Martel joining me uh, to discuss what might have been going on on this planet and maybe some other planets many, many, many years ago. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight presents the midnight files. Midnight Files. the midnight files. Midnight in
8: the desert. Leading stars across the sky This magical journey Will take us on a ride Filled with the longing Searching for the truth Will we make it till tomorrow Will the sun shine on you
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano talking with Jason Martel, acclaimed researcher, author, and lecturer on ancient civilizations. He's also a noted TV personality featured regularly on the History Channel, Sci-Fi Channel, uh, you name it. Uh, Jason, you were talking a minute ago about physical evidence of very almost giant-like beings, large beings that have been found. In uh, Genesis chapter 6, there's a reference to something called Nephilim, and it says right in the, right in the book of Genesis there were giants in those days. Do, do you think that the beings you're talking about, this, these pre-Ice Age beings, could have been the Nephilim that are referred to in Genesis? It's very possible,
11: I think every culture has this reference again of great heroes or deities that are looked upon as actual gods, and they they seem to have been again they they never come down they never seem to like come down from the mountains or across the lakes or from the oceans. they come down from the sky, so it's led us to believe initially that maybe these are extraterrestrials, these are beings just simply coming from other worlds which nothing's black and white. That might be part of the case also, but the overwhelming amount of evidence is starting to point to the fact that there's a lost culture, a race of people that had technology, that had the capability of flight and advanced uh, you know, um, navigation of the seas. We see this because of, again, evidence that uh, suggests knowledge has been passed down to ancient people that there's just a missing variable which is the technological angle so um, a couple of maps several of them have been circulating over the years one's called the perry reese map there's charles hapgood there's the aurontus phineas map and all of these just starting with perry reese map they show a time when earth's continents were still connected and this one map is an example the perry reese map is written by a turkish admiral and he even says that this map is compiled he writes on the on the map is compiled from sources of 20 other ancient maps and so what's really interesting about just the Perry Reese map alone is you see an accurate an accurate topography of the coastline but the coastline shows the continent still connected you see the actual poles uh, uh, you know north and south pole with accurate topography listed now right now there's an ice sheet over Antarctica that's a mile thick. Now, for someone, for one, to have the aerial perspective to map the coastline accurately, don't know how they did that. Two, how did they use ground penetrating radar or something of that nature to see through the ice a mile thick and somehow accurately write the topography of land versus ice, meaning they have the landmass of Antarctica defined with no ice, and it's it's right. So there's a lot of evidence that shows, one, well, how were ancient cultures spreading this information? Is there a way that they were once connected? Yes. If we roll back the clock far enough, we can see that geological changes show us that at one point the continents were connected. And using that knowledge as a base, you start to understand that there's you know an a, a evidence of people having an awareness of navigating the ocean, trade routes that were taking place, much more ancient than, than we understand today. So the evidence is starting to suggest that this race that came around right after the flood came down from the skies, teaching agriculture knowledge, not necessarily extraterrestrial, but a lost technological race that also might have been perhaps the watchers had the ability to, you know, uh, leave the planet, do other things on other um, you know, nearby planets on, on the moon, on Mars, which we'll discuss some of that evidence. But it starts to roll back the clocks and make more sense in alignment towards, again, something happening on Earth that's just a lost epoch of time that we're still trying to unlock.
1: And, and what do do you believe? Do you have a theory as to what became of that race and why the uh, beings that that uh, came about subsequently on this planet had to sort of relearn those sort of technological innovations that that race had seemingly already mastered?
11: Well, you know, there's 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 a lot of pieces to this puzzle, and one of the other areas that I research is called the lost cycle of time. Most people think of time as linear, meaning if they go back far enough, people are just, you know, a hunter-gatherers. And if we go up to today, they're more advanced technological. That's not the case. It turns, out over, it turns out that over 30 ancient cultures were tracking a system of time that is a much larger cycle. Today, we call it precession. It's about a 26,000, roughly maybe 24,000-year cycle, depending on how you compute the math. But it basically shows that many ancient cultures were tracking a system of time that's much larger than we understand today. And so we go through things that people have heard of called the dark ages or a golden age. And it turns out that we're still trying to unlock exactly how this influences the rise and fall of civilization here on Earth. But there seems to be a connection in that just by natural causes, we seem to, over time, drift over thousands of years. It's calculated to be a 24,000-year cycle. So in in a 12,000-year cycle, we descend into the dark ages and lose all of this knowledge, and then we go into another 12,000-year cycle of coming back around, and we regain all this knowledge to the point where, in the upper parts of this 12,000-year cycle, uh, towards the end, uh, ancient uh, Hindu texts and others speak of a time when man is actually able to interpret God. Uh, we're, We're very far from that point currently. So what I'm trying to stress is there's enough evidence to suggest man goes through these phases of evolution where we reach a height height, uh, in capability of being able to do things and maybe even communicate uh, just at a basic level with other cultures that are even not from this planet. But then we lose that knowledge. So we seem to have some type of case of amnesia of trying to understand Mm. this lost connection of the ancient knowledge Uh, and you know, the, the the cultures today use a system of time, kind of like a grand clock in the sky where we've mapped the 12 houses of the Zodiac. There's 12 stars where every 2,000 years, our North Star changes to this new point in space. And that's basically us using this system. So, so there's 12 points in the heavens where we kind of move as a clock. And the ancients use that knowledge to coordinate how they aligned monuments uh, to various stars, meaning Orion, which we talked about earlier, you know, pe- people look at that and say, well, it looks like Orion, but why doesn't it match up now? When we roll back the star date to 10,500 BC, now we have an alignment. So there's this encoded knowledge based on astronomical understandings and the movements of the heavens and the monuments on the ground. And so that's the part, Frank, really, that is trying to be mm-hmm. unlocked today, even shows that are currently airing like Ancient Apocalypse on Netflix, my colleague Graham Hancock. Again, it's just using the latest astronomical data to understand where certain stars or the sun and the moon passed in the heavens. And these monuments that have been built were markers that kind of aligned very accurately to these points, but maybe not today, right? So we have to roll back the time and look for when these alignments are taking place, it's kind of like a signal or a flag being thrown to say, hey, look, I want your attention to see this date. And that's the system of time that they used and way of doing it.
1: Um, you, or We've covered the ancient civilization that might have, or the ancient race that might have existed on this planet. You alluded to the possibility of them existing on other planets as well. Beyond that face uh, structure that we've seen, on Mars, is there any evidence on other planets to suggest that they might have been out there years ago
11: so the current the current knowledge of trying to unlock what 's happening in space or is there you know advanced ruins on the moon or or Mars? These are questions obviously that have been you know analyzed for some time, but without having actual people there it 's not easy to answer and the agencies in charge of this data have not been forthcoming uh, and, and, and in some cases, you know, um, restricting access to the actual data. So it's a, it's a difficult answer to have a positive breakdown. And, and I'll give people another example. Again, Graham Hancock's special right now on Ancient Apocalypse, he talks about how he wants to go investigate the Serpent Mound in Ohio they literally respond to him with a bias saying no 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 your theories don't align with our current views of archaeology we're going to deny you access you cannot do research wrong answer that publicly exposes and shows the type of things we have to deal deal with with censorship censorship excuse me from current modern archaeology imagine how that extends when we talk about archaeology on mars so the established set of principles around looking for evidence of a lost civilization on mars uh, receives a lot of pushback and denial from the established uh, set of science principles but that is true science is to push that framework so uh, despite that in place there is still enough evidence in nasa archives from mars global surveyor mail space science systems jet propulsion laboratories and a handful of others and now also non-us companies Um, Japan, European Space Agency, ESA, all have cameras. And so now we have a, a bigger set of data. And in looking at Mars specifically of my interest, there is this area called Cydonia where there's a face and pyramids built right on an ancient shoreline. So another piece that really fascinated me was, you know, if we look at cultural understandings here on Earth, most cultures were built right next to a, a, a waterway. Having access to some type of lake or a river uh, was always a, a great feature. Everyone loves waterfront property, even today. Well, that seems to be the case on Mars as well. This ancient city of Sidonia is built right on an ancient shoreline. The face is situated out in a body of water. You can clearly see a terrestrial change that, when pointed out and looked at from this angle, is an ancient city right on the shoreline. And they built a monument of a huge face that can be viewed from any angle of the shore. Uh, to me, that definitely raised the signal of saying, wow, this is similar of some type of a Mars-Earth connection. And when we look at that face under scrutiny, uh, scrutiny and heavy analysis, uh, it's shown to be very much sphinx like It's a face that has lionistic characteristics. It's got a headdress that's Egyptian. So it it does raise a lot of questions, Frank. And for me, um, the the key point there is time. And if we roll back the time for uh, the the Mars atmosphere and the changes that have happened, it's very possible that the poles of Mars have moved over time. Hmm. And if we incorporate some of that knowledge, again, thinking about the movements in the heavens, it turns out that if we roll back to around Two hundred eighty thousand years ago, the face on Mars is situated right on the equator, just rotating around like a big beacon, saying hi, and it almost denotes that it's wanting wanting to point to or give evidence of life on Earth. So, I would say that there is strong evidence, and, and we didn't even talk about the structures on the moon, but there's strong evidence to suggest that this this race was not only building structures here on Earth, but possibly on the moon as well as Mars, at a time when we just don't understand, you know, parts of our lost civilization that could have gone back that far.
1: Are you convinced that the pre-Ice Age civilization that we're talking about on this planet, are you convinced that it was one race, or do you leave the door open to there potentially being multiple races in different time periods or on different portions of the globe?
11: I think that's fair to think that there's probably been multiple races but at this point in time i'm leaning towards one lost race that existed here on earth and we think about the time of atlantis and uh, other continents right off the coast of india there's a, a literally a, a sunken continent or a city if you will very large called dwarka yanaguni um, in japan the bimini road in in uh, you know the bahamas there's lots of evidence that that suggests there was something, uh, you know, happening, but it's so far off the recorded books, it's it's very difficult to understand, um, you know, the nature of these sites until more evidence is, you know, put forth.
1: Do you believe that there's an, evolutionarily, an evolutionary link between modern humans and this pre-ice age ra- race, or is it a, an etch-a-sketch situation where the planet was essentially shook and started over, at least when it comes to humans?
11: You know that's a good question. You know when you ask again about other races uh, being in the mix, that's that's part of what we're trying to understand is that a lot of these sites also, or these cultures, reference specific star systems, either cirrus, Pleiades, and some of these cultures, there's like there's no way they could even understand some of the knowledge that they have. Uh, there are tribes in Africa that have been monitoring the cirrus star system, cirrus A and B. And they have knowledge, in fact, that it's actually two stars, Sirius A and B, and and you can't even see this with the naked eye. And and they, you know, have accurate understandings of some of the orbital placements of these stars and how they look. With with you know the aid of a telescope, uh, it really starts to raise a question around how they have this information. So you know, it's something that we still need to, you know, look into further.
1: Talking with Jason Martell, researcher, lecturer, author. TV personality. Why do you call your book Knowledge Apocalypse?
11: Well, it's funny, too, because there's now a show called Ancient Apocalypse with Graham Hancock, and it's a a little bit of a crossover there. Knowledge Apocalypse is basically my way of saying that, you know, an apocalypse is like a revelation in knowledge, something being hidden that is, you know, instantly brought forth to mankind. So I think for me, I'm I've been very much overwhelmed in the last 20 years of research that there's this awakening of knowledge that the general public has not been as interested in or aware of. Um, But it's definitely been a quickening effect for people to not only become aware of this, but then realize, wow, this might answer a lot more questions I have when previously told that there's either a science view to look at from our history or a religious view to look at from our history. And combining those gives us kind of a little bit more of a open-minded realm of possibilities. So I think it's a healthy, I think it's a healthy approach, uh, you know, to investigate and, and to question norms that we have today.
6: What is ancient school? Ancient
11: school was a, a project I put together where just wanted to dive into some of these topics around the ancient astronaut theory in more detail. So, at the time, you know, when we discuss these topics, like on shows like Ancient Aliens and such, you know, everything has, uh, you know, a script and an agenda to talk about that's maybe not specifically driven around my line of research. And so, in ancient school, I just kind of dive very specifically into what we're talking about tonight around, you know, these structures on Mars, some of the technological evidence around the world left by this race of, you know, advanced technology, advanced advanced um, architecture. Um, and so I, I think, you know, ancient school and even going forward is, is to just bring people's awareness that there's this line of research going on. I don't think most people are even aware that there are these connections being made. We've all heard pieces of this, right? Like you mentioned sure. earlier, giants upon the earth, that sort of thing. But there's, there's, there's little pieces uh, of this all, when we put it into the right view, start to form you know, a better picture of the puzzle. And so that's, it's exciting that we're finally starting to make some inroads uh, you know, on this advanced topic.
1: Obviously, there's been the Mars Curiosity rover that has been uh, transmitting information back uh, to this planet. And a lot of people have cited this as something that's uh, really groundbreaking in terms of Martian exploration. Is any of the information or any of the images that we're getting from this Mars rover, does any of that support the notion that there might have been uh, some sort of ancient civilization on Mars years ago?
11: Yeah, most definitely. A lot of the rovers and landers have been basically showing us evidence that they're, uh, you know, Mars was once alive. Uh, They've been landing in an area called uh, Arius, Arius, oh man, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong at the moment, but it's, uh, they've been basically investigating an ancient uh, shoreline where most of the landers find evidence for, Amino acids and such that would point to some type of ancient salt water uh, being on Mars. And so the idea that there was once water on Mars raises the question, obviously, for life. And if you look through some of the NASA archives, what's really caught my attention, and I'm surprised it's not on like, you know, MSNBC or CNN, is that there's quite a bit of vegetation actually on the surface of Mars now. Most of the NASA imagery Hmm. just is filmed in black and white. Um, But you can see that some of the other imagery from ESA uh, shows the same areas that NASA films in black and white. They film it in color. Um, And we have to wonder if we're not actually seeing on some of these areas what look like some type of uh, chlorophyll or vegetation. uh, Also combined with large bodies of water, uh, freeform water standing on the surface. so that's what I show in in, in my lectures is that there's literally evidence in the NASA archives of what appear to be um, even a living Mars that exists today in some form. So that's, you know, something that, again, people on Mars, actual researchers, it's going to make it a lot easier for us to confirm this evidence. But there's strong evidence to suggest that Mars was once uh, very much alive. And the idea that it supported life, there's, again, you know, those checkboxes are being checked off. So there's, there's definitely, a, a, you know, a groundwork there to say, yes, it's possible that an ancient civilization did exist on Mars and that Mars was once very much an alive planet. But again, we're talking about a time frame that's, um, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even possibly millions of years ago. So, you know, these structures on Mars raise a lot of questions into understanding just how far back we really go if they're, you know, actually connected to us. You know
1: I mean? All right. I'm going to take one more break and then we're going to get to uh, some listener calls. Anybody that has questions for Jason Martel, you can give us a call right now at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Talking about ancient civilizations that might've existed on this planet pre ice age. It's wild stuff. When you think about it, this is the other side of midnight straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight. 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 It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's
8: a god awful small affair to the girl with a mousey hair, but the money is yelling. But her friend is nowhere to be seen. Now she walks through her sunken dream. To the seats with the clearest view. And she's hooked to the silver screen.
1: But the this is David Bowie, Life on Mars, joined by Jason Martell. We are not even scratching the surface of uh, the work that Jason has done in terms of researching ancient civilizations, the technologies of ancient civilizations. Uh, You could check out his book, Knowledge Apocalypse, that's available on Amazon. You could also check out. Uh, Jason's website at jasonmartel.com. A ton of interesting information on there. Jason, a ton of people have questions for you. I'm going to try and get to as many of them as we can here, Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. And to everybody that's on hold, I just ask that you try to get right to your point and keep your questions brief so that we can allow Jason to answer and then give as many people as we can an opportunity to ask whatever they want. Igor is in Fairfield, New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Yes.
7: Thank
11: you, Frank. Uh, if I heard right, I believe you said that you, you said that there was some evidence of pyramids or some structures on the moon. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. There are structures on the moon uh, that have been filmed, a uh, tower, various things in, in craters, stuff on the dark side of the moon. The, the structures on the moon aren't my specialty, but I'm obviously aware of the same principles that have existed for filming things on Mars as well as on the moon. You know, all of this imagery is controlled by essentially NASA. So we have to use them as a gate to understand, are we seeing all of the evidence? And based on their track record of sharing and their agreement with the um, uh, agency in charge of basically saying, hey, let's you know not share this with the public, the Brookings Institute. um, It's clear that if there are structures on the moon or on Mars, the pyramids and that sort of thing. It's being, uh, you know, withheld uh, from the general nature of the public. Uh,
1: So, Jason, to that point, if NASA is withholding information from the public, you alluded to that Brookings Institute report, which I think is a a number of decades old, that indicated that the public would not handle this sort of information well. How do you think the public would handle information about this kind of thing if NASA were to be more forthcoming? About it.
11: It's a deeper topic, Frank, that one needs to understand from the ufological angle, and this is where it gets confusing. Over the last 60 years, there's a cover up in place to desensitize and confuse the public. It's happening even right now into today, Um, changing the word UFO to UAP, having things like ATIP, Blue Book, Project Grunge. It goes on and on. They appoint these task force to say, we're looking into the subject of UFOs and we'll give you an official answer and it never goes anywhere. It's always a smoke screen. So understanding that the lens to look at these topics is obfuscated by you know, a program of saying, we don't want you to know the truth, <clears throat> makes it very difficult to answer these questions. And you have to understand that that is in place. And it's a very hard topic to one, acknowledge or pierce through the understandings. It takes, you know, people who have been studying this a long time to see the patterns of how this type of information is handled by the agencies in charge. And I don't fault NASA or any of these three letter agencies doing this because they, you know, are doing it for reasons that are for national security or things that the public is just not in charge of. What I'm interested in is the fact that there's, you know, a, a precipice coming and change where that security blanket, that that quietness of not admitting anything about UFOs, aliens, Area 51, S4, and a bunch of other stuff is that, you know, the, the public needs to become aware of this on terms that's not going to freak them out. So, yes, relating back to the Brookings report, we still to this day have an overwhelming, you know, sociological issue. Hmm. If they were all of a sudden on CNN to say UFOs are uh, on uh, hovering over every continent tonight, uh, we're not sure what's going on. Um, but I would say that if that happens, if all of a sudden we wake up one day and there's UFOs all over the skies or something of that nature, I would issue a word of caution. Um, because, again, the, the things in place now, there's been events that kind of push us towards um, what we are allowed to believe, and what we're supposed to believe. And one of those scenarios is possibly saying, hey, let's do an alien threat to unite the world. Even Ronald Reagan talked about this. What if there was possibly an outside threat Hmm. and it would make all of the nations unite that still exists today. And I think it's a card that hasn't been played yet by the powers that be to further help us get aligned into a one world civilization. So, you know, the topic around aliens and UFOs is very confusing at the top level because there is something obfuscated happening and I don't know how it's going to break to the public. Uh, We've most likely have a huge Space Force that's been in existence for, you know, multiple decades and being completely hidden from the public and all the only trace that we can put to it is to go, huh, you guys lost $4 trillion in black budget stuff, $4 trillion. Um, Where the F did it go? Mm. Well, they built a private Space Force and have been doing that for 50 years.
1: One of the most famous NASA astronauts of all time and really a pioneer in terms of space travel has been uh, Buzz Aldrin. Now, he's been someone that's been willing to raise some questions and actually be pretty outspoken on some things that don't exactly always fit with NASA's narrative. He was on uh, the Sci-Fi Channel a couple of years ago describing just seeing what sounds very much like a ufo or uap experience
7: i saw this illumination that was moving with respect to the stars we were smart enough to not say uh houston there's a light out there that's following us so technically it becomes an
1: unidentified flying object what what do you make of that and similar comments from someone like buzz aldrin jason
11: buzz buzz has a different mind frame it might be connected to the ability to have a say in this without breaking clearance um let's give it time and wait till he is ready to disclose more there have been others in his position that upon leaving this planet leave us with a gift of knowledge one of them was philip corso wrote a book called the day after roswell again he is on record for his clearances and his participation in the military for reverse engineering, advanced technologies that we would get from downed craft and put that into commercial use. That was not just German technology. It was alien technology. He even tells us things like Roswell, how they reverse engineered it and found night vision, fiber optic technology, time travel, a bunch of these things that people on the outside would be like, what? This can't be. Unfortunately, it is. And it's just very hard pill for people to swallow. But again, like there is strong evidence in the public domain. It's just it's again, it's uh, it's kind of a matrix matrix effect for people to actually realize that these things are happening. So, again, I think it's a desensitizing of the public and I'm aware that it's been happening through media and other sources. So it's just a very exciting time to see where the ball is going to drop or how this is going to land.
1: Very quickly here. John in Freehold has a question. Hello, John.
7: Hey, Frank. Hey, uh, Jason. Um, it's a pleasure talking to you guys. Uh, Jason, I was just wondering if um, if you've had a chance to meet with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer and if you would align yourself with him over somebody like uh, Jeremy Corbell, who he says is just putting out false information.
11: Right. Well, that's a pretty esoteric question. Thank you. Um, I'm aware of both individuals. Stephen Greer, I've had mixed feelings on over the years. I'd say that my view on him today is that Um, He comes from a good place. I think the research and things that he does with his CE5 initiatives and having a mental mindset of how you contact aliens or interact with them, I'm not going to get into detail, but I think that is interesting. And there's some, you know, there's some good groundwork there. He's been in the trenches for a long time doing the work, putting his hands in the dirt, Dr. Stephen Greer. So I'll give him credit for that. This new gentleman that you mentioned, yeah, you know, there's going to be new players on the field we just have to uh, allow for that um I, I i would say that some of these new players again are just recirculating the evidence that has existed for decades and are now just bringing their own opinion to it um and that's probably the case with uh you know the names you mentioned uh But it's all in the the right effort to open the box and get us the truth. So I I encourage it.
1: Jason, uh, it is a real treat to talk with you. I hope we could do this again soon. I hope people check out Knowledge Apocalypse, and I hope they go to jasonmartell.com. Thanks very much.
11: Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Good night.
1: All right. uh, Jason Martell, you want to comment on any portion, you can. Meantime, uh, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Couple of things. One, I uh I routinely pose different questions to you. Sometimes they're complicated, sometimes they require a lot of introspection, sometimes they require a, a little at least a little bit of intellectual heft. I am going to pose a question to you in about a minute that is um that you can respond to right away because it doesn't have anything to do With intellect, it doesn't have anything to do with education. The only thing it has to do with is your gut, your gut reaction. Maybe there's some thinking involved too, but I'll tell you about it. And it all has to do with uh, the Ric Flair documentary that I recently watched on the Peacock Network. It's called Woo! Becoming Ric Flair. It's very good. It's on the Peacock channel. It's uh, As I said, they cover some of the same ground as the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, but they get into it with a little more detail. And uh, there are some aspects that they leave out of uh, Ric Flair's non-NWA, WCW, WWE career that uh, is not covered in here. But on the whole, it's well done. And Ric Flair is adopted. His, uh, His name that he had from his adoptive parents was Richard Fleer. He took the name Ric Flair and kind of adopted the Ric Flair persona. You know, one of the things, uh, I don't want to give away too much of this documentary, but one of the things that I was a a little surprised by, quite frankly, and kind of not shocked but taken aback by, is that Ric Flair, who's in his 70s now, with all the health issues that he's had, and in spite of the fact that... um, so many of the problems that he's had health-wise and just in life, running around on all his wives, getting in all sorts of trouble, uh, doing all sorts of things he shouldn't be doing, have been due to alcohol, he still is drinking every day for hours. He's, he, he's drinking on a schedule, which I found pretty perplexing. Now, I, I was almost surprised to hear, because he have been drinking – Essentially, since he was a teenager, pretty heavily, uh, uh, much more so since he suffered some family tragedy, which I'll let you watch the documentary. I don't want to speak for him. But I wouldn't have been shocked if he said, yeah, you know, I have a drink a couple times a week. I drink once in a while. Social drinker. The guy drinks for two or three hours every night. And now. That's a lot for anybody. But that's more than I'm drinking. Right. Uh, But. That's a lot for somebody who suffered a number of health issues. And in spite of what Ric Flair might say, I'm convinced that uh, at least some of them have had to do with excessive drinking. But anyway, um, Ric Flair and his wife Wendy are interviewed in this documentary and Ric Flair was adopted. So he never knew his biological parents. And until recently... Rick did not know that he had a biological sibling. Listen to Ric Flair and his wife, Wendy, talking about Ric Flair's biological sibling. How did you find out you had a brother?
0: So I'm going to reach out to Wendy through social media.
1: I would say
9: about four or five years ago, there was a person who um, had documents and he got his adoption papers and his mother was the same mother. He didn't want anything. He just wanted to let, you know, Rick know that, you know, they had the same mother.
0: Um, I just, she said, you want to meet him? I said, no. I don't have any curiosity. I've got enough to be curious about without someone I've never met in my life and meet him now at 73. What are we going to talk about? (laughs) Where we are in life? You you probably only want to meet me because I'm, what I am, whoever I am, if that makes sense.
9: He's always seen himself as he's an only child. And rightfully so, he was raised an only child. So he didn't really connect with the person or find out anymore.
1: I'm watching that, and I was just blown away. I I have uh, three siblings. Technically, they're half siblings. We have the same father, different mothers. But you know, I view them as wholly as as I could view a sibling. We're very close. I, I think we're close anyway. But the if I learned all of a sudden someone reached out to me that said, you know, I've come across this information and I'm your brother half-brother, whole-brother, whatever. I would be so incredibly eager to meet that person. I would just be so curious about them. What do they look like? What do they sound like? Uh, Do we have any of the same characteristics? Do we have any of the same interests? Uh, What life path did you go down? Who did you get raised by? How did you come to be? I would be just so interested in that. And um, that's my question for you. If you learned at whatever, whatever age you are, 73, 83, 35, 55, whatever age you are, if you learned today that you had a sibling that you didn't know about, biological sibling, not someone you were raised with, a biological sibling that you didn't know about, would you want to get to know them? Yes or no? 800-848-9222. That's the question.
0: A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited
1: a question. In my view, the answer is 100% absolutely yes. Now, Ric Flair was adopted. I have a lot of friends that were adopted. And they. one friend has always been interested in meeting his biological parents and he met his biological father and they have a cordial relationship. I wouldn't say they're super close. They're, they're cordial, cordial. They will maybe exchange, um, car. The father did not know of his son's existence, which is just mind boggling to me. I don't know how you could do that to a person, not tell them that they're, they have progeny, but, um, and to my knowledge, he's not yet met his biological mother, knows who she is, but he was told that she wasn't ready to to meet him and he wasn't going to push it. So I thought that was interesting. I have another friend who, believe it or not, he hired a private investigator and he tracked down his biological mother and his biological siblings through that mother and now – He's act and they live in Canada, even though my friend lives in New York. And now he's closer with his biological family, that gave him up for adopt- adoption, than he is with the family that he grew up with. Largely, isn't that wild? So he went the kind of the, the opposite way that Ric Flair went. He not only wanted to meet them, he re- re- made a new connection with them, which so I thought was great. My wife she discovered a couple of years ago that her father had a sister that she never knew about that he never knew about meaning my father-in-law who is passed away but while he was alive he didn't know that he had a biological half sister and um my wife's grandfather while um you know had apparently impregnated another woman at the same time that his wife was pregnant so my uh, my wife had a um, an aunt, a biological aunt or a half aunt that was the same age as her father. They were about three or four months apart. Looks like her father, and the aunt who's I met, very nice lady. She was so interested in having any sort of a familial connection because she didn't really grow up. Knowing any of her biological family, so she was really so interested to meet all of her uh, biological family that she never knew growing up. And my wife was very eager to meet her aunt. And my wife has eight siblings already, so I think if she was told that uh, that she had one more, her attitude would be, "Oh, all right, what's one more sibling?" So I'm curious what you would do if you were informed you had a biological sibling. Would you want to meet them? Rick Flair says no way, no interest, no how. What are we going to do? What are we going to talk about? They only want to meet, meet me because I'm famous, because I'm wealthy, because they want something. My attitude is the exact opposite. If I had a biological sibling, I would – or any other kind of close immediate relative, kind of anything closer than a second cousin, I would absolutely want to meet that person. Curious what you would do. 800-848-9222. That's 800 800- Eight four eight ninety two twenty two, but um, Bob in Yonkers has been holding a little while. Let me give Bob an opportunity to comment. Hello, Bob.
8: Good morning, Frank.
1: Morning. That interview you did with that
12: gentleman, excellent. Thank your you. Rain, your range, your range up to the heavens.
1: Thank you very much. I hope so. I always try to do something Keep different and Keep try to bring a different approach to radio.
4: Excellent, excellent interview.
1: Well, it's nice of you, Bob. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you were interested in it. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Alfredo is in Newark. Hello, Alfredo.
6: Yes, Frank. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, My case is very interesting because uh, I have... uh, We are four, but uh, during my whole life, I am 54 years old. Like, uh, three guys already appeared in our life, and uh, my sister's. Didn't like those uh, half brothers. Technically, well, uh, so, Alfredo,
1: uh, I'm just I'm having a little a little trouble understanding what you're saying. So, your sister, you, you, I got that you're 54 years old. Your sister did what?
6: Yeah, we have we have four, and my old sisters, my three old sisters, they didn't want that half brother that came to our family because uh, they thought that, that if they come, you know, the money that my father left was going to be divided into more people, so they didn't accept them. Ah, I see. I see. So they
1: didn't want to accept additional siblings into their lives for financial reasons.
6: But me, I was like you. I was so interested to meet them, but I couldn't because my sister didn't allow me to meet them. But
1: why is it up to your sister? Why can't you make a, make a connection with them on your own?
6: Because I am here and my sisters are in Peru, so I asked ah, them to give me their phone number, and they didn't want me to, you know, to have their phone number, the information, nothing. So when I come back to when I come back to Peru, I will find, I will try to find out by myself. Gotcha,
1: gotcha, Alfred. Well, I hope you're able to do that. I appreciate the perspective. You know, it's funny. My. Um, it's a little bit of a different situation. It's totally different, actually. But my grandfather had two siblings that he came to America with. They came on believe it or not, you know the ship that my grandfather came to America on, the Andrea Doria, obviously before its infamous inf- incident. But um, he had two siblings, maybe even three, I think it was two, two sisters, I believe, that stayed behind in Italy. So I never knew them. So uh, I knew my my great uncle. And my uh, great aunt who lived in America. But I never knew my grandfather's sisters that stayed behind in Italy. And I was always so curious about meeting them and their children and, um, you know, a, someone that's a relatively close biological relation that uh, that I never got to meet. And I, I – if somebody told me that I had a biological sibling, I would want to meet them right away, right? Not necessarily um, – have a relationship with them, but I'd want to meet them. I'd want to see what they're like. I'd want to uh, talk to them. I'd want to learn about them. I'd be very curious, curious, and I wouldn't want anything from them. I mean, obviously, if you're in a situation where you need an organ or something, uh, it's always good to have as many relations with as many biological relatives as you can. I always tell people that. That's why people tell me that um, they fight with their brothers, they fight with their cousins. My attitude is even if they're 100 percent wrong and you're 100 percent right, which in my experience is pretty rare. Most people are not, you know, 100 percent right about anything. But let's say that's the case. It's still you still have to try and patch things up. You still have to try and maintain a relationship with them, because if you ever need a an organ that those are the folks first folks you have to turn to so, um I'd be very curious if I ever had a biological sibling. My question for you is, would you if you learned you had a biological sibling, would you want to meet them eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 that's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two one two three four open lines e Frank is in Astoria hello e frank
4: yes, good morning frank Good morning. for many, many years. Uh, I used to hear this story and and I looked it up at the website about former commissioner, Raymond W. Kelly, as, uh, you know, he's a, a, a host there at ABC, his son Gregory. That was his only child. But Then I, I saw that he had, like, two other children. He had a, a girl and, and, and another child, and I didn't understand why that he would say something like that, that he at one time only said that he had an only child, and it's publicly stated in many shows, and then... You, wait, you, wait, you wait, 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 Frank,
1: uh, back up a little bit. Um you're talking faster than Elliot Resnick there. So what you're saying is what? That Greg, uh, that Ray Kelly has another child other than Greg and that he doesn't have a relationship with? Is that what you're saying? Uh,
4: well, no. I'm saying that he, he stated for years that Gregory Kelly was his only child.
1: Okay, and you're saying that's not the case?
4: No. I looked at the website, at the profile, at Wikipedia, and it says that he has a, two other children. So I didn't understand why he would say that he only had Gregory as his only child.
1: Right. OK. And then, uh, and, you know, it, it's shame on me for for going to you and expecting a, a reasonable conversation here, E. Frank. But let let me, since I, I went down this path, let me continue. What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Like, what does that... Your interpretation of Greg Kelly or Ray Kelly's Wikipedia page have to do with the question that I'm posing to the listeners, which is, if you had a biological sibling, would you want to meet them? What does that have to do with anything?
4: Well, I'll give you a small explanation. There are people who state things and then they discover they're not true. For example, Curtis Lee was said that John Gotti Sr. had an illegal, legitimate uh, daughter that went to Stella Maris High School. Is that something wrong when he said that? No. So in my case, uh, my father had uh, five abortions. He claimed that I was in his only child. And Very progressive
1: for a man in that era to have five abortions. And- Back then, men didn't even get pregnant for the most part.
4: <laughs> That's right. And a lot of people have confronted me and say that I have a sister that lives in Manhattan and she wants to meet me. I personally don't. Wow, well,
1: like, I don't believe well, that.
4: Well, I I personally do not like to support siblings that are biologically uh, connected to me. I oppose the idea.
1: Thank you, thank you, E. Frank. You know what? That's on me. That's on me. I took E. Frank's call. You got to know what you're getting with E. Frank. You know, it's that's on me. 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 I just got a, an SMS text message here from a uh, a very distinguished broadcast professional. I'm not going to tell you who she is because she's she's kind of famous and very talented, and I want to embarrass her. But she said the exact opposite of what I'm saying. She said, I would not want to meet a new relative. Nothing but trouble. So I... I don't understand that at all. But this is also a person that doesn't drink at uh, at work functions. So, what kind of uh, what kind of credence can we lend her opinion? All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. What about you, Matt Blaze? Where do you come down on this? Have you learned you had a sibling, uh, a biological sibling? Would you want to meet them? Absolutely. You would. Oh yeah. And you absolutely. don't want to meet anybody. No, I would. I'd want to know how how my whoever it was, my
0: mother, my father, how they came to be who's your other parent, when were right. you born, right. yeah, how, thing. to, how things cross over, if we're close in age, or how
1: all of this came to be, how you came to be, and how we never, how did we not know about you. Remind me, you, do you have a, um, a siblings that you're, uh, existing siblings that you're aware of? Yeah. You do, I how have many? A sister. a sister. I have a sister. Whole and a stepbrother. Half? No, a whole sister. Whole and, sister. And a stepbrother. Older or younger?
11: My sister is younger.
1: Younger. You guys yeah. close? Um,
11: somewhat. Somewhat. Okay. I mean, mm-hmm. she's... She lives far away but I see well oh,
1: that's always a, a that's always yeah. tricky all right so there you go Matt Blaze uh shocked me here if you're asking me what would Matt Blaze have selected I would have said he doesn't want to be bothered with the people that he does know, let alone the people that are coming out of the woodwork uh, i am um I'm a big believer that uh if you, if we're a biological relative, I need a blood transfusion I need a bone marrow transplant you're the first people I'm reaching out to. That's why why I'm nice to everybody. You never know who can give you an organ, especially if you're related to them. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Roger, what about you? Would you want to meet a biological half-sibling? Yes. All right. I'm
13: I'm surprised that he said no. Um, In fact, um, I'll I'll just give you a brief story. I hunted down a relative uh, successfully. Um, Well, you should not be killing your relatives. Pardon?
1: No, never mind, Roger. Go ahead.
13: Uh, okay. Anyway, well, the answer is yes, but my mother lost her entire um, immediate family by the time she was fourteen, and so we knew that she had a, a, a sister that was two years older than her. Um, and uh, but my sister said to me, "But you know," she says, "I don't know if I remember her name." And she says, I, "We have no idea where she's buried." And I've known her for several years. We knew no no nowhere where she was buried. So. I called City Hall and researched it, found out everything, and, and there was enough room on the stone. I managed to get her a name etched on a stone, finally, with the date oh, and everything else. Well, that's nice. I'm
1: glad to hear that, Roger. I, I, I like to hear that. It's great that you went to that effort, and it's, and thank you. It's funny. My friend that I was telling you about that became closer with his biological mother than he was his adopted family, and he had a good relationship with his adopted family. I understand Um when he went up to canada met his biological family after a couple of times of meeting with them and maybe if he's willing i don't want to i don't want to out him or tell his story but maybe if he's willing i'll have him come in cuz he's kind of a character on a bunch of different levels but maybe i'll have him come in and uh tell his story cuz it's a fascinating story especially the way he tells it but he befriends his sisters and he befriends his uh you know his biological mother and One of his biological sisters says to his mom, because they thought there were three of them, three sisters, they said, all right, mom, now we have to redo your will and all of your other end-of-life arrangements to include Frank in the arrangements." And she didn't hesitate. She wanted, and the siblings wanted, that other fella included in her estate, which I thought was really nice. But that's not something that I would – Ever expect uh, if I was a new, you know, new sibling to someone? 800 Gail is in West Virginia. Hello, Gail. Hello, Frank. Hi. How are you? I'm hanging in there, Gail. Uh, tell me your opinion on what we're talking about. I did meet mine. Um, I have four brothers and
10: three sisters, and we were a very dysfunctional family. So, long story short, <clears throat> our sister found us by dna and everything we couldn't believe it but here's the kicker my father died and we all went to his funeral all of us four brothers and three sisters four sisters four sisters and when we went into the you know to the funeral home we all walked in his widow she about died she thought he only had one
1: son and here comes all eight of us in there and she she about slipped stupid you know (laughs) well so gail help me out how did the emergence of this new sibling come to be? Did they connect with you through a a genealogy website or something, or you always knew about their existence? How did that come to be that you had a newly discovered sibling? Uh, We didn't know
10: anything about it, but she, um, she, my mother was her mother, you know, by, by a different father. Sure. And apparently something happened to her, her real father, and she just started going through his stuff, and she found my mother's picture, and her name, and she started looking it up. Then she did a background thing, and she would. She didn't know it either. She was so happy. We met her, and we all got along. We
1: still get along. We talk a little bit here and there, you know. But, but it was pretty cool. That is, see, that's uh, that's wonderful, Gail. Thanks for sharing that. Um, you know what? I don't know what I'd be expecting in meeting a new sibling. My expectations really would be not be much, right? Uh, but I'd just be so curious. I would want to meet them, right? And as far as this. Uh, unnamed broadcast professional who's uh, SMS text messaging me saying that they would not want to meet their sibling under any circumstances. I, um, because they want something right. And that's what Ric Flair is basically saying. I feel like there are so many people already asking me for things as it is that, all right, what's one more. Okay. One other person that's always going to be asking me for things. All right. 800-848-9222. We're going to go live to Atlantic city in just a minute. Very excited uh, to talk with uh, Nicholas, um, Nicholas Huba. He is a, a distinguished reporter, an editor, actually, for the press of Atlantic City. Does a great job out there. Why can't Atlantic City get a supermarket? I mean, it's amazing to me. I, I, Atlantic City is not a tiny, small town. There's also probably $2 billion worth of gambling revenue coming into that city every year. Can't we do something to get the folks there a supermarket? You know, I have a lot of friends in the 48 blocks of Atlantic City, and I was there last week. And I asked them, where do you go for groceries? Well, one friend says, oh, I go to Margate. Another friend says, oh, I go to Ventnor. I, I I think that's just awful. And there are these food deserts all over the country, and one of them is in Atlantic City. And, you know, whenever we talk about somebody from Atlantic City launching one of these large-scale development projects. like We spoke with Bart Blatstein, who's launching what he's launching at Bader Field. Uh, We've spoken with a bunch of other people that have big plans for Atlantic City, big hopes for Atlantic City. The question that the chorus of critics that listen to this show just to criticize everything that I do always asks is, well, how can they do that if they can't even get a supermarket? I'll be honest with you, it's a fair question. So those are a few of the questions we're going to pose to Nicholas Huba in just a minute. Bernadette, though, is in California. Hello, Bernadette. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Bernadette. Well, I have there's 17 siblings. What you at where you have 17 siblings?
14: Yes. So, uh, I, I. It's unbelievable. I know. I just found out the other day I had another one in Florida. My dad was French. And he was a lover. And all these kids kept popping up. And I'm the oldest. My brother, me and my brother were from my mother. And all the other ones were from different women. And he got some of them pregnant at the same time, my father. And uh, some of them are the same age. That's incredible. It's incredible. Everybody's talking about it. My friends, uh, they just can't even believe it. And then the other day I got a call. And it was from uh, 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 another sister, and she lives in Florida, and uh, she found me. And uh, she's trying to find her mother, who I knew from my grandmother, Bernadette, who I was named after. And uh, there's just a bunch of us. It's,
1: it's, it's unbelievable. So it's just unbelievable. You, you've met all 17 of them?
14: No, I haven't met them all. I've talked to them all, uh-huh. except for one. Except for one doesn't want to talk, and I don't push it. Because sure. That's up to him, you know. But I want to know them. I want to meet them, sure. So, and then I found a cousin that lives uh, two hours from here from my dad's real brother, and she found me on 23 Me, and I came up as her first cousin.
1: You know, it's so and funny. I met her. You hear stories like this, Bernadette. Usually it's from someone that's the child of a prolific sperm donor, but your father did it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, he did. And most
14: of the kids, what's really, really sad is most of the kids were either left at, at, at a church or they were left in an orphanage. Uh, they, oh. they, they were all, most all of them were adopted. Uh,
1: that that me, is that is, is said. So, Bernadette, uh, real quick, because then we, we got to run. Um, tell me, yes. what kind of relationship do you have with the siblings that you have met at this point? Are you guys cordial? Are you guys keeping in touch? Or what's the story?
14: Oh, no. We keep in touch. And my one brother... Uh, just called the other day. My my brother that lives in Alaska calls me. Yeah, I talk to a, almost all of them all the time. You know, not every day, but we always keep in touch as much as we can. The, there's a couple that talk once in a while. And then there's a brother that was living here in, in, in Monterey, and I didn't even know he was living here until wow. he called me on the phone with the 831 area code.
1: That's wild. And, Hey uh, Bernadette, how did you how did you discover our show out there in California? I'm Just curious.
14: My husband listens to you every night.
1: Who does your husband?
14: Yeah, and he's in there listening to me right now because he he said, "Come here, hurry up! This is your story."
1: That's wonderful, <laughs> uh, Bernadette. Thank you. Please thank your husband for me as well.
14: I will. Have thank a good you. Night.
1: Appreciate it. Everyone else that's holding, please continue to hold. We'll try and get to you a little bit later. We're gonna go live to Atlantic City. You know, I have a, a I had a, a you know I have a friend. Um, I don't want to mention his name because it's sort of an unusual name, but he met his older brother when he was in his seventies and he was 73 at the time, my friend, same age, Rick is, And he met his older half brother who we didn't know existed, um, who was in his nineties, in his nineties. And they developed a great relationship. And what my friend said was that he felt an instant connection with this fella. And um, I asked – I met his brother at a family party one time. I met his older brother who's in his 90s. And uh, he was telling me he met their biological father once uh, years ago, 70-something years ago when he was in the military. And he said, uh, you know, I don't want anything from you. I'm not looking to, you know, mess up your life or anything with your new wife and new family. I just wanted to meet you and say hello. That was all he was interested in. That's all I'd be interested in. All right, uh, Nicholas we will talk Atlantic City straight ahead.
0: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Marano. This is the AC Report.
5: Man in Philly last night, and they blew up his house too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now, this trouble bussing in from out of state, and the DA can't get no relief gonna be a rumble on a promenade and the gambling commission is hanging on by the skin of his teeth everything dies baby, that's a
1: fact but maybe everything that dies someday he comes back put your makeup on fix your hair up pretty
5: and meet me tonight in
1: atlanta This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Time for our weekly look at Monopoly City, one of the most interesting cities on the face of the earth. And that is Atlantic City, New Jersey. A year ago, uh, we had announced, we'd broken the story that Atlantic City was getting a supermarket. They were getting a shop right, to be precise. People were excited about it. And I don't remember who I was talking to. It might have been my buddy Tom Forkin. And I asked him, basically, what do you think of this? Isn't this good news? And he says, yeah. We'll see if it happens. And I said, how can this guy be so cynical? Why shouldn't he just celebrate the fact that Atlantic City is getting a, a supermarket for the first time? And sure enough, it looks like the deal for a supermarket is dead. Here to tell us more about that and uh, what else is happening in Atlantic City is Nicholas Huba, the news and digital editor for the Press of Atlantic City, Atlantic City's go-to newspaper. Nicholas, thanks so much for uh, getting up early. I know it's a, a tough hour. Thank you.
12: Hey, thanks, Frank. Frank, thanks for having me. First of all, I have to follow an intro that includes Tom Fork, and that's really impressive. <laughs> um,
1: you know Tom, I guess. Then
12: I I've, I covered Tom for a while when I was on the on the AC beat, so. You talk about the idea of, um, you know, uh, they announce this project and everyone gets excited. You know, there's an old saying we always joke about in the newsrooms. We call Atlantic City a city of renderings. It's it's a city where you have plans, but sometimes they just don't come through perfectly. And I think this is another example of that.
1: All right. So uh, before we get to exactly what happens here, which I'm most curious about, Set the stage for a lot of our listeners because when I was promoting your appearance on social media and on the radio, a bunch of folks uh, who maybe haven't been to Atlantic City or they just – even if they have been, they don't leave the casino or the boardwalk. They were all – not they all, but many of them were a little bit surprised that Atlantic City doesn't have a supermarket. How long has that been the case that a city as well-known as Atlantic City has not had a supermarket?
12: It's probably been about fifteen to twenty years, if I can remember correctly. Like they do have like smaller, like they have like a Save a Lot, I think a smaller Save a Lot, and they have a lot of bodegas, like these boom, soup, these boom food markets, which are really ingrained in the communities. And they, you know, if you've ever been in one, they function directly as a smaller supermarket for that direct community. Like there's one by the new Stockton project that's just a, that's being built and. and Stockton University, which was open in Chelsea, like there's a really nice one there. They're scattered throughout the town. There's smaller bodegas on corners. You know, the issue of the supermarket's been going on. You know, if you go back to like when the state, when Murphy's administration took over, they issued a report from Jim Johnson talking about the concept of a food desert. And this was kind of one of the things that they, you know, both the, the mayor and, and the um, government and the state government hung their hats on it as a thing like they were going to do to make Atlantic City a better place. You know, you go, this was 2019, I think the funding or 2018 when the funding was all like um, basically allocated for this for CRDA. And, you know, the world's a very different place financially and just different totally, like since 2018, 2019, mm. pre-pandemic, you know, and you look at the project and, you know, they just couldn't come to a number so to make it
1: work yeah who was the they that couldn't come to a, a, a number obviously part of the they has got to be ShopRite. who's the other component that uh, they couldn't come to terms with
12: the CRDA the casino reinvestment development authority the big um would take a lot of the casino taxes i don't think i don't know if a lot of people are, are very familiar with it but you know the casinos pay the taxes they pay them, they used, they paid them directly to they paid directly to the um the RDA, and they would then take that money and repurpose it for like different projects around the city. Some of them were inside the casinos. Some of them were like, you know, different, like the skate zone was funded in part by on that and a couple other things in the city. So they would then, they would take that money and put it into other projects. And they set aside like a large chunk of money like for this, but, you know, it just negoti- it kind of ha- like one of the things that's very interesting about the project is Murphy and, and the state was down here for a groundbreaking. And like they celebrated this. Thing. Right. And that, then they,
1: that, that's what I'd be so embarrassed if I was everybody involved here. Well, that's the thing. A lot of people keep going
12: back to like, you know, one of the things when you have a groundbreaking, you, you better have a firm deal, you know, and a firm deal, but it looked like, like village one in village supermarkets, who was this, this right person would go back according to reporting from our reporters, Bill Barlow in particular, who did a great job of the story. Um, there were discussions – Sources told us that there were discussions that Village kept wanting more and more money, and you know, and I, I guess the state didn't want to go to that level, you know. But my question always, this with this such with this situations when you hang your hat on such a, a cornerstone project of Murphy's administration running Atlantic City and the state control stuff, like how do you not make it happen?
8: Mm.
1: And you, you indicated they couldn't come up with uh, an agreement on the numbers. As I understood it, they were basically, the CRDA was essentially giving this location to ShopRite at almost no cost, something like a dollar a year. What numbers could they not come to terms on?
12: Uh, our understanding was like the construction number, also, and also like numbers for fun, like to run it, like to cover losses, you know. You know, there's a concern like and I think people who have followed Atlantic City for years, one of the concerns about some of these projects are like like this one in particular, is kinda like people won't go on the record and really say it, but it's like the loss of, of merchandise and stuff like
1: that. The concern that. about you know, shoplifting.
12: Shoplifting, yes. Um shoplifting, they having they're had an issue at the walk with that kind of stuff, you know. A business, do they want to come into the city and Take a loss and how are you going to cover that loss for that developer like that was the issue you know how what number were they to able to come to that covered those potential losses and also don't forget about this though the one thing people talk about like Atlantic City also remember Atlantic City as some as a professor once told me is the biggest little city in the world like you go anywhere in Europe people know Atlantic City you go anywhere people know Atlantic right. City Atlantic City only has forty thousand people at its mm-hmm. height. You know, it has less than that now, probably. So it isn't a monster city, like population wise. So always keep that in mind when we talk about Atlantic City. Sure, it's a two billion dollar gaming mecca, but the actual residency is a is a is about forty thirty five to forty
1: thousand. It's a great point. So where do things stand now in terms of the future prospects of getting a supermarket there?
12: Well, right now, we're kind of like the state, uh, right before Christmas, and right before the holidays, I think, actually said that they're going to go out and seek proposals again, you know. Um, I think the first time, they only got one back from Village, you know, from, I think, the ShopRite company. So, it's interesting to see, like, if another supermarket will step up and and want to take on this project. CRETA has the land. CRETA's got the money. You know, now it's up to, like, I guess, coming up with a number, mm. you know, to make it work. and. You know, the economy is very different now like than it was when they originally allocated that many money pre-pandemic, you know. So yeah, I guess the question is how high, how much more money is CRETA and the state willing to throw in and how much is the developer or the person willing to kind of bite the bullet in a way?
1: Mm, no, it's uh, – we'll see. It's uh, certainly disconcerting. You know, one of the things that I alluded to when uh, I was uh, introducing you – one of the things that people often say whenever I have a developer on or somebody that's proposing a new project, whatever it is, is how can Atlantic City get that done if they can't get a supermarket done? Do you think that cynicism is well placed at this point? Uh,
12: yes and no. I know I'm gonna stand on the fence here. But there's always been, you know, you listen to developers talk, you listen to um People talk from the city. You know, one of the issues with the city is the governmental way it works. You know, you have CRETA that controls the tourism district. You have the city that controls this. You have the state that's involved now. If you're going to do a project, where do you go to even start? You know, there's no kind of central thing. And I think that's kind of it. You know, how can they get anything done? You know, this has been an issue for generations, you know. Um, I, I just think these projects, you know, look at what's going on at Bader Fields. Look at kind of the issues going on there. We have the two competing projects. You have this like auto sports kind of themed project and you have Bart Blatstein's themed project. You know, there's there's kind of con- not controversy, but there's issues with those. Like how are how are you supposed to redevelop Baderfield? What's the process to redevelop Bader Field? So, you know, some of it's, it's inherently in the um, kind of way the city operates in a lot of ways.
1: Sure. No, that makes sense. Talking with Nick Huba from the uh, Press of Atlantic City. Uh, I saw in the Press of Atlantic City that the Atlantic City Visitor Welcome Center is going to reopen uh, this year. Uh, what is at the Visitor Welcome Center, and uh, when will it reopen if it hasn't reopened already?
12: So that, that's actually a funny story. Like, you know, you go into the city, you see that on the expressway, there, you see a tent-like building. Like, it's been closed for years now right. because... They didn't know, even know what to do with it. And evidently, last year it was reopened, unbeknownst to anybody. <laughs> like, like, it's one of those great Atlantic City things. Like, it was open. No, well, no one let anyone know. And, and kind of the story we got from the state was like, oh, Phil Murphy wanted to try to, like, um, want to open it to see what it could do. And then reopening it this year is like, that place has been fraught with issues over the years. You know, when it was built, it was only, it was built without a bathroom. Like, who builds a visitor center without a bathroom? Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that why we all stop at rest stops and visitor centers like when we're going to, like, Virginia or Maryland or anywhere? Um, and then they added two small ones. So it's always been kind of like, the, um, you know, the kind of this, like, I don't know, like albatross in a way. It's like a smaller one than a lot of things and a lot of albatrosses. But it's, it was kind of a joke at one point. You know, now it's, you know, now they're going to try to figure out what to do with it. Because, you know, you drive into a city and you see a thing that's closed, it's not a good look. You know what I mean? Like, and perception is reality in a lot of ways to people. So I'm interested to see, like, at see um, kind of what happens with that. So, so they can make it
1: work. what is there? What is in the visitor center?
12: Oh, it's, like, small. It's got, like, some pamphlets and kind of, like, you know, you go to, like, if you're going down, like, the eastern shore of Maryland, like, they have those, like, smaller mm-hmm. welcome centers. That's kind of what it was. Gotcha. A bunch gotcha. of pamphlets about, like, you know, you want to go, like, you want to play golf at this course. You want to go, like, shopping at this place. You know, you want to go to Tomasello Winery, which is, like, on the mainland and stuff like that. You want to do those kind of things. Like, that's kind of what used to be. You know, but, like, as as um, an Eric Conklin story a couple of weeks ago, like, last week was talking about, like, there's no need for that anymore. Like, with the advent of digital uh, with smartphones and everything, everyone just pulls their phone up and goes, I want to go to a restaurant. I want to go to, like, an amusement park. You just pull, put it in, you're good to go. You know, so I think that's part of what they're trying to figure out with this whole
1: thing. From your perspective, how do you think Atlantic City is uh, is doing overall? It's no secret that Atlantic City has had some tough times. There's also been uh, times that were incredibly prosperous for Atlantic City. From from where you're standing, how do you see Atlantic City in the present and in the near future? I think. I think this is kind of the new normal
12: for it. Like, I think like casino game is going to probably stay where it is a little bit. Like, I don't see it ro- going much higher. Or maybe it goes a little higher, but like not crazy. Um, the city, you know, um, I think overall, I think the two biggest things are like the, the redevelopment of Bader field and, um, and the supermarket in a lot of ways, you know, they have made steps. Like, I think the one thing, like I, we all have to be kind of cautious of is like, being too negative on it. Like, they've introduced, like, the city staff program, which allows people to report things they see and they're trying to, like, use it as a checklist to get things in the city cleaned up. Like, things that are important to the residents, like, like trash and that kind of stuff. They have these weekly city, city, these bi-weekly meetings about um, safety around the walk and those areas that, that the casino people are involved in, that Tanger outlets are involved in. So, you know, I, I think it's, I think it is kind of, it's moving in the right direction. It's taking a little time, but everything Atlantic City takes time. That's uh, like part of the bit.
1: That's for sure. Hey, I, you, uh, you didn't come to my uh, annual New Year's Eve, Eve party uh, on Friday. You were sorely missed. Hopefully we'll get you there this year.
12: Maybe. maybe I, you know, I have, I have two young kids. I have a 9 and a 12-year-old. So it's like getting out sometimes can be a little crazy. So uh,
1: Understandable. I, I, understandable. Uh, understandable. But, uh, hey, Nick, this is a lot of fun. I hope you'll come back. It was great to talk to you.
12: Uh, I will definitely – now I'm going to go back to bed, I think, until I have to wake up for the morning show. So thank you very much. <laughs> you
1: thank you, Nick Huba, the press okay. of Atlantic City. You want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to do so at 800 848 That's 800 This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. midnight, 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 midnight. It's –
1: I saw the end of uh, Knives Out Glass Onion yesterday, and uh, my wife and I saw it. We enjoyed it immensely. We both really liked it. Again, I saw it in three sittings, whereas the first film I saw uh, twice in one sitting. So I I think um, if you've not seen the first Knives Out film, that's worth seeing first. But if you're a fan of the first Knives Out and you like the Daniel Craig character in, in Knives Out, Glass Onion, that excuse me, the, uh, if you like the first Knives Out film and the Daniel Craig character in that film, then you're going to like this film as well. I enjoyed it very much. It's sort of a throwback to a lot of old school mysteries. And in addition to Daniel Craig, you got Edward Norton in it, uh, Janelle Monet who I learned recently is now non-binary. I didn't know that until after watching the film, but I was glad to watch it and then learn she was non-binary because, you know, I've never been accused of being woke, but uh, I always feel like when I watch something that has a non-binary character in it, that's sort of my way of being down with the non-binary community, which I'm not always down with. So anyway, uh, it was really well done. It's a phenomenally entertaining Two hours, maybe a little, a little more than two hours, maybe two and a half hours. If you like mysteries or if you like comedies, it's great. Uh, you know who steals the show in this film? Uh, Kate Hudson. She's terrific. Goldie Hawn's daughter. Uh, also, Dave Batista, the former wrestler who was in uh, a, a wrestling stable with Ric Flair. He's in this film. He's great. So it's really well done. It's masterfully, cla- uh, masterfully cast. There's great music. And uh, a lot of great visuals. It's very entertaining. Uh, Knives Out, Glass Onion. Here's the trailer to uh, Glass Onion. If you wanna, if you wanna check it out.
2: Hello. Oh my God. Crew, we've arrived.
3: Disruptors have assembled. Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend.
0: Who's
3: that? Benoit Blanc, the detective. Mr. Pro, I cannot overstate
2: my gratitude to be here. When's the murder mystery start? I've invited you all to my island. Hi. Because tonight, a murder
7: will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. Well, this is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? (laughs) Alnaberry.
13: That has a kick. Oh,
2: my God. What happened? (gasps) Holy...
13: Ladies
5: and gentlemen, it's been a murder, and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. I must insist that nobody touch the body.
7: Jeez, detective, who killed the party? I need to find a motive for murder.
4: Everyone would stab a friend in the back to hold on to this rich bastard.
5: you killed
0: are all friends. Why would anyone commit murder?
11: Are we even going to talk about the elephant in the room? Am I the
8: elephant? Yeah.
13: You're the elephant. You're not that bad. i danger here. Are you calling me dangerous?
6: Well, we'll see. Let
13: it all out. Hell
0: yeah! This is reckless. The killer wouldn't hesitate to kill again if it covers their tracks.
2: great at clue huh? i'm very bad at dumb things ticking boxes (laughs) running around searching all the rooms it's just a terrible terrible game so there you have it that's
1: the trailer to knives out glass onion it does hold up on its own you don't need to see the first knives out but i recommend both they're both very entertaining until next hour your influence counts so use it This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it is the year 2023, and um, by the way, we're watching. We're keeping an eye on the uh, funeral for uh, Pope Benedict the uh, 16th, which is taking place. It's underway right now at uh, St. Peter's Square. We may bring you some of the uh, some of the audio of that as it's unfolding, but it's. Uh, it's, it's not in english so it's tough to it's tough to understand so we may bring you some of it anyway just so you kind of get a vibe for what's going on over there at the vatican but um it's nice to see it's nice to see pope francis and all the cardinals out there with with this mass uh, paying tribute to pope benedict the 16th i'll say i visited the vatican just once for the first time in uh, october of 2019 and it was really um, really wonderful. Really just even if you're not religious, it's just such a, a, pla- it's a place that's so rich with history and so rich with culture and to get a tour through the Vatican and learn about all the incredible things that have gone on there and see the burial places of some of the popes. It's really a, a wonderful trip. And uh, I, I actually – you know of my my fondness for collecting bobblehead dolls, and I'm going to blow your mind with what I tell you I bought at the Vatican. I bought, and I'm hesitant to tell you this because there's so many of you that already think I'm some sort of a a Russian government apologist or on the payroll of the Russian government. By the way, anytime the Russian government wants to start paying me, they're welcome to. Or any other government, by the way. I bought at the Vatican from a little cart there. They're selling all these knickknacks and everything. I bought a Vladimir Putin bobblehead doll, which is currently... On my bookshelf in my office, that's for sure. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to get to your calls in just a moment. I came across a fascinating Twitter thread yesterday, and I just retweeted it. You could see it uh, for yourself, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And it was tweeted by uh, a gentleman named Paul Ferry, who basically, he picks out curiosities from... Old newspapers and he tweets about them. He's a researcher and instructor at the um, University of Calgary, I believe. And he tweeted a list of predictions made in 1923 about life in the year 2023. And I'm going to give you a few of them, okay? Uh, I'm not going to give you all of them. If you want to see them all, you could just go to my Twitter at Frank Morano. But as I read you these, I thought it would be fun because it's fascinating to me to see what people 100 years ago thought life would be like today. And I thought it would be interesting to ask you, living in the year 2023, what do you think life is going to be like in the year 2123? Now, in order to kind of make this a little more interesting, And see how we do in terms of our predictions. Because I came up with a couple. Nothing great. I would want to think about it more. But in order to see how we do, I thought it might be fun to, uh, I'm going to record all of our predictions that we make. All the ones that I make. All the ones that our staff here makes. All the ones that the callers make at 800-848-9222. And, you know, I use TweetDeck to send out my tweets. And one of the neat features of TweetDeck, is you can time your tweets so that if I'm asleep, I can send out a tweet to the show at, you know, 10 a.m., when I'm usually asleep. You could send it out a week later. You could send it out a month later. So I am going to create a document that has all of our predictions. And after the show, I am going to time this tweet to be sent 100 years from today. January 5th, one twenty three. Who knows if Twitter will exist by then? And if it doesn't exist, I'm not sure what happens to my timed tweet if it goes somewhere out in the ether. And um, also, my son, who's one now, has an email address, right? I'm not going to give it to you because I don't want him getting all the crazy emails that I get. But my son has an email address and uh, we use it to send photos occasionally or to send, you know, uh, descriptions of what he's doing now or God forbid anything ever happens to me. I send him some stuff and he can look to it the way that Superman looked to the crystals that Jarrell left him. And uh, he'll have some of my wisdom even if I'm no longer there. So I write to him occasionally and so does my wife, so do uh, my parents on his email address. I am going to time this prediction email to be sent to him in a hundred years. Now, who knows if he will be alive in a hundred years. I hope he is by then. Uh, pe- the average lifespan will probably be a hundred and one or something. But if he's not, hopefully his heirs will have access to his email and they will be able to dig this up. So those are the two ways that people or whatever's populating this planet in the year or the uh, or the metaverse wherever we're going to be interacting in 100 years that's how folks are going to hear how accurate we are with predictions so i want serious predictions you can make predictions about any aspect of life that you want you can make predictions about technology you can make predictions about um, sports you can make predictions about business entertainment lifestyle communication fashion music whatever whatever you think life's going to be like in a hundred years from now, one, give me, call in and make one prediction. Don't list 10, but because we want to give everybody an opportunity and I'm going to time it to be sent a hundred years from today. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you how the people in the year 1923 did. Let us go back in time to the year 1923. One prediction, um, and I'd have to, I I think you'd have to say this has not come to fruition, this was uh, that the workday will be four hours long. This is from uh, Dr. Charles P. Steinmetz, the electrical expert at the time, believes that time is coming when there will be no long drudgery and that people will toil not more than four hours a day owing to the work of electricity. And what Dr. Steinmetz thought, he visualized uh, an amazing transformation in life in 2023. Every city will be a spotless town. That is to be the work of electricity also. Well, that has not come to fruition. Here's the weirdest prediction that I saw. And you can see all these on my Twitter, at Frank Morano. Women will blacken their teeth and shave their heads It's now predicted that by the year 2023, only a mere little stretch of a century ahead, women will probably be shaving their heads and the men will be wearing curls. Also, the maidens may pronounce it the height of style in personal primping to blacken their teeth. Won't we be pretty? That's from Savannah News. This is from the Minneapolis Journal. This is really interesting. Essentially, that radio will replace gasoline. It is an attractive prophecy that Glenn Curtis, the airplane authority, gives of air flight. He predicts that by the year 2023, gasoline as a motive power will have been replaced by radio and that the skies will be filled with myriad craft sailing over well-defined routes. Well, that did happen. Right. I mean, we do see airplanes all the time, but hasn't really replaced gasoline. Gasoline is still around uh, <laughs> this, I guess. Let me read you this prediction before we rate the accuracy of it. All Essentially, that all people will be beautiful. Fewer doctors and present diseases unknown. All people beautiful. Beauty contests will be unnecessary as there will be so many beautiful people that it will be almost impossible to select winners. The same will apply to baby context. Okay. And, um, you know, I was talking about how I hope my son lives to be 101. This is an interesting one about life expectancy. What do you think they were predicting about life expectancy? I don't know the source of this, but this uh, newspaper says, by 2023, the average life of a man... Could be increased to 100 years. In individual cases, it could be increased to 150, perhaps 200 years. Can you imagine that. Another person, another scientist says the average life expectancy would be 300 years. So, and unfortunately, what we've seen the last two or three years, we've seen life expectancy go down. Um, this was one of the weirder predictions that I saw from. The year 1923, about what life would be like this year. Kidney cozies. Kidney cozies will be worn to protect the kidneys on chilly days, just the same as a teapot in the north is kept warm by a tea cozy. Well, that has certainly not come to fruition. And um, the U.S., this was interesting. The U.S. will have a population of 300 million. The population of the U.S. in the year 2023, probably 300 million. It will imply an immense progress in the drainage of our lowlands and in the irrigation of our arid lands. Well, what is the U.S. population today? It's more than 300 million. It's 331 million. Now, I don't know that they were imagining that um, all these other states since 1923 would become states, but that's pretty, pretty accurate. Another population... Uh, Excuse me, another prediction is that Canada may well have a population of 100 million. You know what the population of Canada is today? Well, it's well short of 100 million. It's 38.2 million. And um, this (laughs) this was interesting. And this is a prediction that, I'm sorry, has not really come to fruition, that utensils will be made of pulp. Pulp from an orange or something. That didn't happen. And um, a bunch of others. I'm not going to go through all these. I'd love to hear from you. What predictions do you have in the world of health, technology, fashion, culture, you name it? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222 of what life will be like in the year twenty one twenty three? I came up with three uh, so far, and if I could... If I spent more time on this, I'd come up with more. But I want to see the ones that you come up with. Four open lines, if you want to jump on board. One is that we will finally, after seeing it on the Jetsons, after seeing it in Back to the Future, we will finally have flying cars. I don't know what's taken so long with these flying cars. We've been we've supposed we've been waiting for these for sixty years. We got to get flying cars. That's got to be a top priority. I think if you look at where we are with the combination of self-driving vehicles, electric vehicles, and drones, that we're a hundred years from now, we got to be on the way to, to having self-flying cars. So that's one prediction. Two, and I'm serious about this, and I think you're, this may even happen sooner than a hundred years. I think a hundred years from now, almost no one will be eating meat i think uh the era of people consuming beef pork chicken maybe even fish will be gone and almost all the meat based dishes that people eat meatloaf steak hamburger are going to be kind of like the beyond meats that you see or the impossible burgers i think that's what's going to be the standard meal i think maybe you will see a couple of people eating meat But it's going to be – I think it's going to be very rare. Uh, I think it's going to be a super luxury item and very difficult to find. That's my prediction. And then the third one – and I think we're very much headed in this direction. I think that almost everybody will have the option in 100 years to live on posthumously through AI holograms. And using the information that we put out to the world through social media, through email, through recorded sound, through the constant surveillance that is going to be monitoring us for the rest of our lives now, that people will have the option of having their image preserved after they're gone and interacting with living beings as a piece of artificial intelligence, using – the stuff that we've put out there to the world on social media. Give me yours. What are you predicting life will be like a hundred years from now? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848 That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, my buddy Richard Luthman writes, Prediction, the United States will no longer exist, but New York and Florida will. There will be a national breakup. Well, that's interesting. You know, I remember... About 30 years ago, I was watching uh, i was watching a television program. I don't remember which one. But it was exploring, do you think the United States will still exist as one nation in 100 years? And this was 30 years ago. And I said, I was in the room with my parents. I said, do you, what do you think? Do you think that will be the case? And uh, they, there was mixed views on, on the question. I don't remember who said what. But uh, they said basically, I hope so. And uh, I hope so too. So Richard says that the United States will no longer exist. Well, that's an interesting one. Any area of life that you want to make a prediction for a hundred years from now? Tell me what it is. Let me be, begin with Tony in Howard Beach. Hello, Tony. Hi.
7: Yeah, I think the Jets will not have won the Super Bowl.
1: So okay. So still no. So you still think there will be football and tackle football hundred years? Okay, there will be. Yes. F- there will be football, yes. but no more Jet Super Bowls.
7: They will not have won.
1: Okay. All right. That's correct. Well, they, who knows? We'll see. But no no Jet victories in the Super Bowl. I got to tell you, I would be shocked if football, professional football, exists in its current form 100 years from now. I don't see it happen. I don't see tackle football eg- existing at all, and you know this. This mentality was on display on the View yesterday. I was going to save this for Brian Kilmeade, but since uh, w- we went in this direction, I'll mention it now. Joy Behar was uh, talking on the View about tackle football in light of what's gone on with uh, Damar Hamlin, and she basically—well, let me play for you what she said. This is what she said:
5: Only forty-five percent of Americans think that tac- tackle football is appropriate. Yeah. Uh, heterosexual men voted the most support for kids uh, doing football, Mm -hmm. and conservatives were more likely to support youth tackle football. Just saying.
1: So, uh, basically, I didn't like that. Basically, she's going out of her way to villainize conservatives and heterosexual men because they support tackle football. Now, let me give you uh, not that Joy Behar is taking advice from me, but What I would suggest to people is if you want to win over people, the worst thing you can do is what Joy Behar just did in terms of demonizing people that disagree with you. I don't think that's a healthy way to be at all. All right. 800-848-9222 800 if you want to make a prediction on where we are. So far, not getting a lot of good predictions, honestly. Um, so uh, that is a disappointment in terms of the amount of creativity in our audience. Eight hundred eight I'll make one other one here. I think that you are going to see one single worldwide currency. That's uh, my prediction. I think I don't know whether it's going to be cryptocurrency. I don't know whether it's going to be some uh, something like the euro, which is adopted internationally. I think it, you're not going to see the dollar and the yuan and the renmibi, or whatever other foreign currencies there are. I see one single worldwide currency. And I, I do think we're still going to be using money. I know in the world of Star Trek and some other science fiction utopias – they are uh, no longer using money. I, I think we're still going to be using money. I just think it's going to be one single currency. You won't have to worry about changing money or anything like that. 800 848 Original Rick is in um, New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick.
5: Yes, good morning, Frank. Uh, about your prediction about not eating meat, you're not wrong on that. Well, no one's wrong it's a prediction, but um, I think it's not quite correct. We will be eating meat. They, they, Even now, they have the technology to grow cells, you know, like when a person has a, a burn and they, they take your own cells and grow your own skin and graft it on, they can do that now. They're doing it, in fact, in large scales, taking like uh, beef cells and just growing the meat, uh, chicken cells and just growing the meat without slaughtering the animals. And I think in 100 years, We'll have that perfected to where they won't be slaughtering animals, but we'll have plenty of meat.
1: So essentially lab-grown meat.
5: Yeah, yeah, but not, right, just from the
1: cells. You might be right. You might be right, Rick. Thank you. Uh, This is a prediction from the year 1923 of what life would be like in the year 2023. And this one, I think you have to say, is dead-on accurate. People will communicate using watch-size radio telephones. That's what it says. By 2023, there will be no mail between New York and San Francisco. Pittsburgh and London concerns will be will record on talking films orders from merchants in Peking and 1,000 mile an hour freighters will make delivery of goods before sunset. Listen to this line. Watch size radio telephones will keep everybody in communication with the ends of the earth. That's pretty accurate. Right. Um right. eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Peter is in Woodbridge. What do you got for us, Peter?
6: Yeah, um, good morning. Morning. Uh, with the uh with the way we live and uh, with, with all the evil around, we may not even be around in twenty twenty uh Well I'm reminded of the years. old
1: Lone Ranger joke, Peter. What do you mean we, you know, Misabi. Who's the we that's no. not gonna be around? Nobody? Not a joke,
6: not a joke at all. No, we're no, kids, I know, but that's, that's, that's the punchline would of the joke. like
1: to uh But when you say we, Peter, comment, Peter. I was waiting. Peter. When you say we, who is the we that's not going to be around?
6: All of us. Well, obviously,
1: us. no one's going to be around because we're not living to 150,
6: 160. No, no, no. Well, that's true. You're right. I'm talking about the world in general. I'm talking about with the way with with the way man treats man, with ah. the way we treat each other. Oh, so uh, human! It doesn't look too good for society in general. So humanity
1: will not even be around a hundred years from now.
6: It may not. It may not. And also, may I uh, may I interject one more thing? Sure. Uh, it w- I was waiting for Hamlin. God, re- God bless him. Uh, hope he's okay to be politicized. And Joy Behar did it. Also. This is out of the blue, but let's see if uh, if she wants to politicize it fine. Let's see if he was vaccinated. And it has been known that healthy young men's hearts have stopped All right, Peter. Uh, due to the vaccination. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I, I'm not up for this discussion. I, I can't handle a, that discussion at the moment. All right. So Peter says human, we will not be around. Well, you know what? I'm guessing that's the most accurate prediction. I'm betting it's a pretty good uh, prediction that I will not be around. I don't know about you. All right. Um, Brandon in New New Jersey, what's your prediction for 2023? Uh,
8: My prediction
12: is a strong um, campaign against the nuclear family. And if you do decide to go that route, that they're going to tax you for having children. And if you can have more than one, you know, the higher the tax will be.
1: Well, that's interesting, right? I mean, we got 8 billion people on the Earth as it is. If people keep reproducing on this planet the way that we're going, uh, where are they all going to go? That's interesting, Brandon. Uh, that's I'm writing that one down. Thank you. 800 Your prediction for life 100 years from now. What do you see happening? Gina in Brooklyn. Hello.
14: Hi, Frank. Hi. Frank, if we're going to have increased drones and flying automobiles, I think people are going to have to go for a walk with a mandatory helmet and a stainless steel umbrella.
1: Mandatory? Why, because of all the fly- the drones crashing and stuff?
14: Well, all of that stuff, you know, like hubcaps fall off of cars on the road now, right?
1: Well, That's true, yeah. So you think you envision a lot of falling debris in the future?
14: Well, if there's going to be a lot of flying electronic things, you know, more than ever, I think we're going to have to protect ourselves from, you know, from
1: things that are going to be all over the sky. Okay, well, hey, you, that, that's as good a prediction as I've heard, Gina. Thank you. 800-848-9222. What do you see life being like 100 years from now? Steve is in Manhattan. Hello.
7: All right, big Frank, and I'm glad I got in there before Brian hogs the show. In 100 years, folks, Al Sharpen will replace George Washington as the father of the country.
1: I'm not writing that one down. That is funny, but I'm not writing it down. All right, um, Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello, Howard.
7: I want to go back to the
1: past.
5: I'm sorry. Uh, first of all, your your review last night of i El- and with Elliot was terrific. I mean the the talk. Thank um, you. And um, I also, but I want to go back to the past because you mentioned bobbleheads, and uh, I I saw a terrific bobblehead, two terrific bobbleheads in Cold Spring a number of years ago. I'm not in co- into collecting dobble- bobbleheads. So I didn't want to spend the money. But it was Nikita Khrushchev and Castro. And because the floors weren't even, the bookshelf that they were in, the glass bookshelf was always shaking. And it looked like they were arguing. <laughs> it was really Oh, that's great- funny.
1: That's clever. I'm going to see if I can find that online. That's pretty clever. Where did you see that? In
5: cold spring, but
1: it 's not there anymore, no, I got you, but maybe somebody's selling something similar online that 's interesting howard thank you all right um, we 're going to do the uh, fifteen the thousand dollar minute in a moment if you want to be the seventh caller overall i, I got to say these are okay predictions, not great, not as good as the predictions that i 've just shared on Twitter but uh they 're okay if you want to um if you want to see uh, if you want to see if you have what it takes to answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds. Please give me a call at 800-848-9222. If you're the seventh caller, we'll give you a chance to win $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. You can go ahead and be the seventh caller, 800-848-9222, right now. We'll talk with uh, Brian Kilmeade straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Frank Morano.
2: Just pass them around. You'll find my reason is logically sound. Who's gonna know that you passed them around a hundred years from today? And why crave a penthouse that's fit for a queen? You're near a heaven on Mama Earth's green. If you had millions, what would they all mean? One hundred years from today. So laugh and sing. Make love the thing. Be happy while... This day. is The Other
1: Side of Midnight. We're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade There's in just a bit. Uh, by, you know, I was joking with Brian Kilmeade yesterday that uh, if this vote for speaker keeps going on, Pretty soon they're going to make you the speaker by the time I it's, it's scheduled to talk. And you know what Brian said, mentioned that he is? And this is in between him doing all these TV and radio appearances. He was on basically round the clock yesterday. He said, I'd still do your show even if I was the speaker, which was nice. All right. Uh, we're going to try and get someone to be $1,000 richer as we embark on...
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano.
1: Thank you, Chris Libertini. Uh, let us say hello to Agnes in New Jersey. Hello, Agnes. Hello. Hello, Frank. Agnes. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling.
2: Okay. All I right. hope I can answer you, these questions. You're going to be fine.
1: <laughs> Have you heard this segment before?
2: Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> all right. How do you usually do when you play at home? Oh, I get maybe halfway through.
1: <laughs> okay, all right. Well, that's better than a lot of folks do. Uh, what's your specialty? Are you, are you good with uh, any particular area of trivia?
2: Um, not really. I mean, not, you know, I don't know if... Okay, I'm not good. <laughs> I think uh, you'll I be just fine. Just listen
10: to, to to the different people calling in.
1: <laughs> all right, you're going to be fine, Agnes. The key is just don't get nervous. All right, you're going to be fine. All right, if you're ready to go, we'll get started. Okay. All right. What is a drink that has alcohol in it? Whiskey sour. What animal does beef come from? Cattle. Name an actor who has played Batman. Adam uh, uh, West. Who was the author of the book Moby Dick? Moby Dick. Um,
6: Moby.
2: I can't think of who it is. First
1: name Herman. Herman. Does it ring a bell? Wolf. No, I'm sorry. It was Melville. Herman Melville. Melville. Yeah, but. Hang on, Agnes, um, I'm going to have you talk to Kenneth, and uh, he will give you a uh, a little bit of a, a consolation prize. Thanks for okay. playing, though, Okay, Agnes. thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for listening. There you go. She seems like a nice lady. I was hoping she would win. Well, we're all a winner whenever we get to chat with Brian Kilmeade. Uh Brian Kilmeade is a um a, a really the hardest working man in broadcasting. I used to say in broadcasting, but he's in print, he's ever he's in doing live stage shows, he's everywhere. Uh he's like um Roy Kent. Uh, he's a New York Times best-selling author. He's the co-anchor of Fox and Friends, host of a very popular nationally syndicated uh, radio talk show, one of the most listened to radio talk shows in the entire country. Very pleased to welcome back Brian Kilmeade. Hello there, Brian.
15: Frank, nice to, uh, nice to hear from you. We're all set, ready to go. Uh, it's been the crazy three days. How many times have we said this over the last maybe five years? Uh, this is unprecedented. Yeah, We'd never seen anything like this.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, here we are—that uh, we are uh, in 1923 territory all over again. And M- Michael Goodwin, who's a regular on your show, and I, I love the interviews that you have with him. Uh, whenever he's on with you, he was on with John Katsimatidis last night and he gave his two cents on what's delaying the uh, vote for speaker and these sort of 20 anti McCarthyite Republicans. This was Michael Goodwin from The New York Post.
7: I think now is the time for Republicans to stop the nonsense. Uh, I think they're embarrassing themselves and I think they're creating a, a, the impression that they don't know how to govern and that uh, maybe voters made a mistake in electing them because they're not putting their new majority to good use. They can't seem to get out of square one. I mean, they can't even bring the, bring the Congress into being because you have to elect a speaker so that the members can be sworn in. So it's a, it's a mess.
1: Do you agree, Brian, with what Goodwin said there, that the Republicans are sending a poor message to their country about the ability they have to govern?
15: Yes. Yeah, I I don't mind the debate, but there's no real debate. It's I don't want Kevin. Well, what about I just don't want him. He's this one. Really? He's good enough to be a minority leader. Who else do you want? Uh, Jim Jordan. Well, Jim Jordan doesn't want it. Well, who else do you want? Byron Donalds. Well, he doesn't really want it either. So what about Kevin? Uh, No, he's a problem. Well, why? Well, we want to build up the border. We want to cut the spending. Uh, we want to investigate Hunter Biden. Okay. Doesn't Kevin McCarthy do that? Yes. But, um, you know, we want to – we don't want Kevin. Okay. Well, who do you want? Byron Donalds. Excuse me. He he says he'll take it, but he doesn't want it. This guy was good enough to lead. I understand there was some controversy uh, first time around with his comments about Hillary Clinton, and he lost some momentum there, and they said, okay, we're going to go with Paul Ryan who was looked at as a star for what he did in the Simpson-Bowles report and looked at as great. Uh, he, wanted to be, he always wanted to be chair, a chair of Ways and Means. He didn't want to be speaker. Mm-hmm. He was not good at it. He actually resigned and held the job for a year and a half, which did more damage to Donald Trump than anything else, as well as not negotiating hard uh, to get a budget together that would have financed the wall, a wall we all know we needed. Why would we be raising, putting razor wire on storage containers at the border if we didn't think a barrier was necessary? But what I'm, I'm stunned at, you know, Matt, Matt Gates walking around. Yeah, I don't want Kevin McCarthy. I'll never vote for him. Uh, other people just walk, you know, Lauren Bobert smiling on camera. Yeah, I made demands. Well, what are your demands? Well, I, I'm not really going to say them here. So on Sean Hannity and Mark Levin and others are saying you're making no sense, and you realize he's not talking about the squad; he's talking about lawmakers who want to preen and don't want to don't want to legislate
1: so your contention essentially is that um all these folks that are up there the 20 20 folks that are raising objections to mccarthy and who appear, appear to have gotten a lot of concessions on many of the rules changes they were looking for anyway your your contention is they really don't have much of a point to begin with they should get over themselves and just vote to elect a speaker
15: Frank, exactly. And here's the deal: you're not talking about fifty-fifty. You're talking about everybody except twenty. You're talking about over two hundred people say yeah, Kevin's a guy over and over again, and nineteen uh, say no. One says I'll abstain. Victoria Sports says I just want to move the process. Ken Buck says I, you know, I'm going to vote for, I'm going to vote for McCarthy. But uh, at one point we have got to cut a deal. With, with who? So I watched Chip Roy hop on this special report last night, and it was the first time I saw somebody say, "Listen, I'm going to go back and." And he's a congressman from Texas, and he's voting against Kevin McCarthy. He says, but I'm going to go back, and, and what I'm going to vote on is I want at least four members, basically he admitted. He wants four members of the Freedom Caucus on the Rules Committee because he wants 72 hours to debate anything that passes. He wants fiscal issues uh, to be part of uh, any type of debate. He doesn't want anything coming down the pike that he can't uh, be able to read first. And and the only way to do that is to get on the Rules Committee, which is not the sexiest committee to get on, but it's one of the most powerful and impactful. Okay. Good. I, that's a debate. We're going to go back in, and if Kevin McCarthy comes out and goes, I will not do that. Okay, that's a debate. But right now, Kevin McCarthy's like, listen, I've given in on these demands. Well, what are the demands? Well, I've done on five people can object to the fact that I'm doing a bad job and can get rid of me. Okay? I agree to that. On the Rules Committee, yeah, I've agreed to certain things on the Rules Committee. Uh, I've done everything they've asked me to do. I went with Congressman Fitzpatrick last night in Pennsylvania. I was going back and forth with him. He met for six hours with him. And they said they keep on, and Walt said, Mike Walt said the same thing, they keep on changing the goalposts. So we walk out of a meeting, and we walk out, and then we come back and go, well, no, we, we've changed that. And they want more, and they want more. And and for us on the outside, we go, what exactly do you want? And, and the thing is, you're not dealing with Nancy Pelosi. These are people on your team, and my analogy, I th- think, still stands. Can you imagine if before the Jets played one game, they are in the locker room about to play their very first real game, and – they trying to vote on a captain, and it ends up in a brawl, and the Giants are waiting in the locker room, waiting on the field, going, "Can we play? Uh, listen, let's just play. You know, can we?" And no, no, we got to pick a captain first, and then they decide to have their brawl in front of seventy seven thousand people at MetLife, and and the Giants are just sitting there on the other side of the field, going, "What is going on? How could you not pass this? How could you not settle this before the first snap?" And Kevin McCarthy, this is what I criticize him for. And Nancy Pelosi made sense. He said, I would never bring something out if I didn't have right. votes. Right. Kevin McCarthy has done the same thing six times in a row. What's going on?
1: So it sounds like in the Killmead playbook, there's room to blame both McCarthy for, I don't know, poor gamesmanship here, and for the anti-McCarthyites and the anti for not necessarily fighting for anything except being anti-Kevin.
15: He, exactly. So, you know, you you Andy Biggs lasted a day. Jim Jordan said, I told you over and over again, I just nominated Kevin McCarthy. Do not nominate me. So that lasted a day. And then they go, let's go with Byron Donald's. Byron Donald's has a lot of talent and I think his star has risen and people know who he is now. Great. And I like him. But Byron Donald's only been there for two years. Mm-hmm. Don't don't you have any respect for the position? Don't you understand that you need some experience to do it? Because it's not just what Brian Kilmeade and Frank Morano want. How do you get it done? So, what you do as a speaker, you got to consolidate opinion. You got your moderates, you got your extreme conservatives, you got your uh, maybe you got some guys, some Blue Dog Democrats on on the left that can help you out with some legislation. You got to right. Rindle. You
1: got to build coalitions, especially with yeah. a, a majority this uh, this narrow. A, a lot of I'm sure you hear it on your show, and uh, I know I've heard it the last two days. A lot of our listeners. Are rooting for these 20 anti McCarthyites because. A lot of the rhetoric that they're uh, they're putting out there about ending business as usual, about not having Washington continue the end, endless spending, about uh, sending money to Ukraine while our own border is not secure, that kind of thing, it really resonates with folks. And someone who I thought was actually trying to appeal directly to you, given your interest in your scholarship, was Congressman Scott Perry when he was nominating on, I think, the fifth or the sixth ballot. This is what Scott Perry said yesterday.
15: Now, as my colleagues probably know, the first black members of Congress to serve in this body were Republicans, were Republicans. As a matter of fact, you probably also know that Frederick Douglass, who went and worked with Abraham Lincoln to emancipate the people of color in this country, said he would never be anything but a Republican, would never be anything but a Republican
1: you've got a book out about Frederick Douglass doing very well, but that didn't win you over.
15: Uh, we already know uh, Frederick Douglass is a Republican. Why would you be a Democrat? I mean, Democrats fought to keep slavery intact. Uh, Democrats were the one that had segregation. Uh, Democrats wanted to make sure there were black and white uh, water fountains and, and bathrooms and uh, to the back of the bus. Uh, in the '60s, that flipped historically. But Frederick Douglass, of course, Abraham Lincoln was a was a Republican. Booker T. Washington, uh, for the most part, was a Republican. So these are great black leaders. But this is what bothers me. You like Byron Donalds because he's smart, he's fearless, he's tough. You like his story, but why do you bring up these black? You know, you might want to bring up in retrospect, if I'm doing a 60 Minutes profile, you know, as an African-American, let's see where you grew up. Let's talk about what your parents did and what their aspirations were. Okay, but just say, listen, he's a young star in Florida, uh, a state that's turned bright red and who's coming up, showed great leadership and savvy and confidence. And, oh, you know, oh, yeah, by the way, but basically you're saying I'm nominating him because he's black. And I didn't like that speech. And by the way, Scott Perry, write something down. You're all over the place. Compare that to Mike Gallagher. Compare that to Jim Jordan. You know, Agliar on the left, who keeps nominating Hakeem Jeffries six times, is very good in doing it. Hakeem Jeffries is out of attributes. They've actually gone, to, they're going, listen, did you do anything in seventh grade that we could bring up? Because they're trying to bring up things about Hakeem Jeffries and then nominate him into a flourish. So, you know, I, I just thought, I'm just extremely frustrated. And I have to keep reminding myself that these people are on the same team.
1: You mentioned Ken Buck and uh, the fact that uh, he has been with McCarthy in all six of the votes thus far. He was on uh, CNN yesterday is what he said.
0: Well, I've had a number of conversations with Kevin and and just basically told him that at some point this needs to break loose. Uh, He either needs to uh, make a deal that bring the uh, 19 or 20 over or uh, he needs to step aside and give somebody else a chance to do that.
1: Yeah, with the understanding that you don't think the, the 20 holdouts are doing the right thing here, do you think that someone like Steve Scalise might end up being a consensus candidate that the 20 not, never McCarthyites and the mainline Republicans could end up rallying behind when uh, Congress reconvenes at noon today and actually put an end to this?
15: You brought up a good point, and that is what CNN was saying yesterday. But we want Steve, Steve Scalise. You do? Okay. Steve Scalise says, no, I want Kevin McCarthy. So if you kick out Kevin McCarthy, there's no difference between Steve Scalise. He's got a better personality, and certainly every, he made a national name for himself when he struggled for his life. A was mm. shot almost shot to death on the field. And, uh, you know, standing ovation on both sides, and he deals with pain on a daily basis. But basically, it's like, I, I just don't like Kevin McCarthy. Uh, but don't think you're getting anything different than Steve Scalise. When you become speaker, you got to make deals. And you got to consolidate various opinions, and you got to be able to tell uh, Chip Roy, I need you to agree with Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, and I know you disagree on certain things. And Brian Fitzpatrick voted off on the omnibus bill, but guess what? If I'm Speaker, I represent both them. Uh, I have to get both them. So. Steve Scalise is almost exactly like Kevin McCarthy. So Chip Roy was asked by uh, Brett Bear, who was brilliant last night, in breaking down what Chip Roy wanted and got him actually to get some specific. said, okay, you know all those deals that Kevin McCarthy agreed to already? Yes. Did Byron Donalds agree with this? He goes, oh, I don't know. You don't know. So you're willing to go back to zero and back to before the debate even began to just put anyone up there except Kevin McCarthy – who you never spoke out against prior to this, who we find out there's a anti-Kevin caucus when it turns out to be a slight majority. So Steve Scalise could be the guy, but it's Frank. It's like if you and, you and uh, Curtis Sliwa. You know, Curtis wants to be the man, uh, the most <laughs> popular guy at WABC, and you want to be the second most popular. But if somehow Curtis Sliwa was forced to give up his mantle as most popular, the question is, would Frank work up there and say, I'd like to run for most popular, even though I was totally content at second most popular? So
1: so give me your, release, your best prediction. He step
15: up and campaign for it?
1: Give me your best prediction on what happens today and how this whole thing ends.
15: Well, I think they made progress. Uh, I'm reading between the lines here, and then I heard Kevin McCarthy say last night we're making progress, but I'm not going to have a vote last night at about 11. So I think they're making progress, and I think today's the day. I, I I bet you McCarthy gets it today, and I do think that if he comes back and there's one more vote at 20 and there's no movement, uh, then it's likely going to be Donald's or, or uh, Steve Scalise, unless Scalise insists he doesn't want it, uh, which is— Oh, you strange. think
1: Donald's—you think Donald's could actually have a shot at getting elected speaker?
15: Uh, especially if Steve, if Steve Scalise says no, I, I think it's Donald's. Wow. And— yeah, you know, and that's interesting. But I was going to say this: look at uh, everybody out there. Corey Bush, with this ridiculous congresswoman, this joke of a lawmaker, who was nothing but a crazy activist from Ferguson, who still says to fund the police, came out and basically called Byron Donaldson Uncle Tom, and said uh, he's uh, basically a house slave in her tweets about him. And to Donald's credit, he didn't go back and didn't get uh, called him a prop. Uh, here's the exact uh, quote. He is a prop. Despite being black, he supports a policy agenda intent on upholding and perpetuating white supremacy. His name uh, being in the mix is not progress. It's pathetic. But Donald came back and said, nobody has Corey Bush her opinion on the matter. Before you judge my agenda, let's have a debate over the policies and the out- and the outcomes. Until then, don't be a crab in a barrel. That's a very measured approach back. But I would love to see people come and just rip her to shreds because she's not worthy. of The position of the people she represents should be embarrassed.
1: Yeah, In Kentucky yesterday, we saw President Biden get together with uh, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell at, at uh, an event celebrating the bipartisan infrastructure bill. He was Joe Biden.
6: I'm especially happy to be here with my friend and
0: colleague in many years. And I might add, a uh, longest-serving leader in the United States Senate, Senator Mitch McConnell. I asked permission if I could say something nice about him. I didn't want to. I said I, I campaigned for him or against him, whichever helped him most, but. Uh,
1: uh, What do you think the collegiality, the public collegiality, because we know obviously those guys know one another for for literally decades and have seemed to get along. But what do you think the public collegiality suggests about what the next two years of government are like in Washington?
15: That's a great, uh, great question. I I don't know what he gets out of the House. I don't know what he gets done. I think investigations are going to emerge. The uh, border security bills are going to be pushed. For some reason, Mitch McConnell doesn't seem to care about the border, which is to me insane. He doesn't really bring it up ever. He doesn't use that leverage. He was perfectly okay to sign off on 1.8 billion to build a wall that needs uh, 25 or 35 billion to finish, which he was voting for all this way. Uh, I, I I think that you know he is thinking about in two years being the majority leader and then having a Republican president, so I think he'll get tougher. But what he was doing yesterday is almost like the 1970s and 80s, and that is we're in the minority thanks to January 5th, not 6th, because you blew the two Georgia elections and weren't able to win it back again. But in the infrastructure bill, they got over 10 Republicans. Why? Because they lost the the Senate, but they wanted to get some infrastructure done. So to get some bipartisan buy-in, because you only use reconciliation twice— They said, "Okay, what do you need? And he said, I need this bridge. And Senator Portman says, I need this. I need that. And some Republicans weighed in, 10 of them. They all got something. But for the most part, Democrats got got two-thirds. But they have the majority because of the vice president, and they have the majority in the House, and they have the president. So they decided, let's get something because we do need infrastructure, airports and things. But just know that Donald Trump's infrastructure bills, and there were multiple, and part of the reason they didn't get them is because of this this hoax, Russia hoax. Every time something happened on Infrastructure Week, some Russia revelation would come out, and nobody would be talking about infrastructure. But Donald Trump's was bigger and had more spending in it, and it wasn't paid for. So you can't come out and say Republicans never would have done that. They actually pitched it. I don't know if they would have gotten through Republicans. I I imagine it would have. So he said – you know, Mitch McConnell got something, said, if you're going to build a bridge from Kentucky to Ohio, Senator Portman's going to be there. Now he's retired, and I'll go. So that's the way it used to be. A lot of people mm. were afraid to, for the semantics. But two years out, you, Frank, that's why you could do it. Two years out. He wouldn't do it next year.
1: Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens today and, uh, and for the next week and for the next two years. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, it's always a treat to talk with you. It's been great, uh, great fun watching your analysis on Fox uh, uh, in between all these endless votes on the speaker. I'm looking forward to seeing more of it today.
15: Thanks. We've got uh, Kurt Volker coming on, Michael Waltz, uh, Mark Thiessen, and most likely Brian Fitzpatrick. So we'll be writing this story uh, leading up to the big vote at noon. And you will sleep till noon and get up and find out if those 20 people are still going to vote against Kevin McCarthy.
1: And and you got to ask Fitzpatrick. A lot of people are talking about him as one of these bipartisan unity candidates for speaker. Uh, Ro Khanna uh, told uh, your colleague Neil Cavuto that he listed him specifically as one of the Republicans that he could vote for to be the next speaker, actually. So it'll be, be interesting.
15: interesting. I know a lot of like if you think if you think they're upset with Kevin McCarthy, <laughs> you, Matt Gates will his, his head will get even bigger and it'll explode. Uh, on the House floor if that if the That's happen. for sure.
1: Uh, Brian Kilmeade, check him out on Fox and & Friends, and then uh, be sure to ke- uh, catch him at uh, 10 a.m. here on uh, WABC and around the country for all three hours of his uh, terrific nationally syndicated radio show. 15 seconds of fame in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848
0: 848 9222 Straight ahead. The Other Side at Midnight. midnight. Other side at midnight with Frank Marano.
1: Only about 90 seconds left. So before we get out of here, why don't we give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Time for
0: side of midnight. This is 15 Seconds of fame.
1: Bill! In
13: Howard Beach. New York City may have no more room, but after Labor Day weekend, the great sanctuary state of New York has plenty of vacancies at the east end of Long Island.
1: Mike in Parts Unknown. Always a good show, Frank. This is for you, Eric Adams. This is for you. Okay, I'm sure you watch the movies. Here's a line from Goodfellas. You need to get your shine box. You couldn't shine Rudy Giuliani's shoes. And finally, Terry.
12: Uh, Brian Kilmeys, one smart mother ever.
1: All right. On that note, we will end it there. I'll be back tomorrow. Ask Frank anything. Frank Moreno, good day.
0: Tax day is coming. Oh, no.